Hi everybody, welcome to Stretch Free Lounge. I'm Bill Whittle, your host, your uh, living, breathing, fully functional, three-dimensional, automated human uh, stress endurance uh, lab rat. <sighs> you know, sometimes you just, it's not healthy, it's not good, you're just vibrating from stress. Uh, we're recording this on Friday night instead of Thursday. We've had to do a bunch of Friday night shows, which I wasn't happy about. People think uh, uh, that, you know, um, did the show move to Friday? No, it's just if I can't do it Thursday, I have to do it Friday. Uh, I just got off of um, uh, what was really a fun shoot. It was the mad dash across town and getting getting over here in time uh, adventure. Uh, we did, uh, did our, our third season uh, thank you, Dave. Uh, am I sure that I'm recording? I am actually. Thank you, uh, Dave Big Booty, and your and your checklists. Uh, let me double check that. Yes, we're recording. Um, okay, so so um, this is the third season of a show on Fox Business that I've been doing called um, American Built. Now, the producer told me, although he may tell this to all of the people that sit in and, and do it, but he said the main reason he thought they got picked up for, for seasons two and now three was uh, because I could spin a good story out of um, things like the 747 and the lunar module and stuff like that. Uh, regardless of that, um, it's a real pleasure and honor to be doing a third season. The show is about um, American-built projects and uh, just finished recording a segment um, on uh, the M4 Sherman tank and uh, what else? Uh, the Kennedy Space Center. And then I did another segment on the Stinger missile and the, and the Javelin missile. Um, it's, it's really uh, fun. And, um, and I, I really, I really like doing that kind of thing. I really do. Uh, so anyway, um, I'm going to get a link to the existing episodes and a link to the ones that are going to be seen. So I will post them, either post the videos on YouTube uh, or at least throw a link to them because uh, I'm really, really proud of them. Um, the the uh, Sherman, which I, you know, here's the thing. I th they, they asked me to do this stuff. I think, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but last season I did three segments. And I forget what they were, but let's just say they were the lunar module and the 747. And, and I can talk about those things. And then I got a memo saying, so, okay, so uh, tomorrow you'll be shooting a, uh, lunar Module 747 and uh, the light bulb. And I thought, the light bulb? I don't know anything about light bulbs. But after an hour, I did, and I ended up using, I was most of the light bulb episode. So I guess it's just the, the just the gift of gab, you know. Like somebody kissed the Blarney Stone. I hope they kissed it. I hope that's all they did. Uh, but in any event, it was um, it was really fun. Uh, the Sherman tank especially was fun because uh, I always felt like the, that, that, that tank got an unfairly bad reputation. Uh, the short form, uh, for those of you who can't wait to see the episode, but the short form is, is that when the, when the Sherman, M4 Sherman American tank went into Europe in 1944, there was a period there uh, for seven, eight months where it was just, just being massacred by German tanks. I'm not going to give you the whole story because it's a long story, but basically that's not the Sherman's fault. Uh, 
the Sherman was never designed to be um, a main battle tank to, to fight other tanks. Originally, the Sherman was designed for, believe it or not, the, the, the mission for the design of the Sherman was to break through enemy lines and then start blowing up things in the rear, blowing up ammo dumps and stuff. That's, uh, that doesn't happen. So the Sherman, when the Sherman was in production, had the 75 millimeter gun, which looks pretty short and stubby and is, and is definitely underpowered, right? But when the Sherman was being prepared and, and the war was actually on, when we were fighting in Tunisia, when we first went ashore in Operation Torch, first time American troops went ashore, um, the, the Shermans were fighting against the German Panzerkampfwagen 3s and 4s, and the Sherman held up real well against those tanks. But the 3s and the 4s were the, the, the most produced tank of World War II, the Germans had. The Sherman could hold its own against that. But between Operation Torch in 42 and, uh, and D-Day in, in uh, June of 44, the Germans had been locked in these unbelievable armored battles with the, with the Soviets. Uh, Kursk had so many tanks in it, you, they, somebody said you might as well put bayonets on them. That's how close together they were. So by the time the Shermans go ashore uh, on D-Day, these heavy uh, German tanks like the Panzerkampfwagen V, the Panther, the, the PK, uh, the P-6, the Tiger, and the P-6B, the King Tiger, these things are chewing Shermans up. But that's not the Shermans' fault. The Sherman wasn't designed to fight those tanks. And what's even more interesting about that is that once that became clear, it didn't take long for um, American and, and truth be told, British ingenuity to solve this problem. So even during the invasion, there were a number of Sherman modified Sherman tanks that were given the nickname Sherman Firefly. And they replaced the 75 millimeter gun with a 76 millimeter gun, which may not sound like an awful lot to you, but a much longer barrel length. The American 76 millimeter was relatively small charge, but the British called it the 17 pounder. It just a terrific anti-tank cannon. And they couldn't, they couldn't fit it into the turret. They just couldn't. So they had to, they had to, um, had to rotate the breech, so instead of loading from the top, it rotated it and loaded it from the side, and and then the, the hydraulic shock absorbers had to be redesigned so that they were shorter. They, there was no room for the radio in the turret, so they just hung the radio out back in a box, basically, just, just stuck it out the back in a box, and I guess the theory behind that was I'd rather have a, if I'm in, you know, facing uh, tiger tanks, I'd rather be in a tank with a big gun and no radio than a gun, than in a tank with a, a puny little gun and, and a working radio. So, um, so those, uh, those modifications made the Sherman, Sherman Firefly and the, and the upgun Shermans uh, made them uh, a match for even the, the biggest uh, German tanks. Um, I, I thought I was happy to talk about the Sherman because the Sherman's gotten a really bad rep. It's gotten this idea that it's just this, you know, this death trap that we sent guys into and it wasn't ready for face-to-face -face combat with um, these these heavy German tanks, but that's not what it was designed for. By the way, we made just under 50,000 of them. The Army got 19,000, the British got 17,000, and if I did my research correctly, at the time of the invasion, the Germans had about 250 heavy tanks like Panthers and, and Tigers in the Western theater. So even if they're being outgunned on a one-to-one 
basis until they put the new guns in, you've still got relatively few tank-to-tank -tank battles, and you've got lots and lots and lots and lots of cases where these tanks are just hauling, hauling ass. Um, they did they did a terrific job. Some of the once even once they started to up gunning, a lot of tank commanders didn't take the bigger gun because while that was the only thing it could get through a lot of German armor, there wasn't that much German armor. The 75, the original gun, had a better high explosive round and had faster reload rates. So there you go. But that but the Sherman did what it was supposed to do. It it moved with the infantry and despite this rep. If you were a GI and you're pinned down in the hedgerows, and uh, and there's a there's a episode of um, Band of Brothers, the true story, that, that covers this exactly, and you're just under machine gun fire, and a Sherman comes out of the bushes, you are damn glad to see that tank. Um, and the other thing that I mentioned, and they, the the producers of the show didn't even think to discuss this, but I insist, uh, and that was the. Um, the, the job that the Shermans did in the Pacific. So 14,500 roughly went to the Army and about 1,100 went to the Marines. But in the Pacific, there was nothing that could touch it in terms of Japanese armor. The Japanese tanks were really, really awful, terrible. Uh, and American tanks, American Sherman tanks in the Pacific just usually made the difference against these built-in pillboxes and all of this stuff that the Japanese had constructed. The only thing you could get in there were these interlapping fields of machine gun fire was a tank. Now, I just finished reading about Okinawa, and in Okinawa they had finally figured out that these tanks were the, the main threat, so they put in a lot of anti-tank guns, and we lost a lot of tanks on Okinawa, but, but the Sherman didn't deserve it. Uh, it didn't deserve the reputation it got, and even if it was undergunned when it finally went into Europe in '44, they upgunned it pretty fast. One of the, this is the last I'll say about it. One of the Sherman Fireflies. One of the, it was a British tank, British Sherman tank, given to to Britain. Went ashore in Normandy. With the invasion, British commander, British crew, and it was a Sherman Firefly. It had the big gun, and. In the first days that they were ashore in a in a French village, this one German I'm sorry this one Sherman Firefly, commanded by a uh, Sergeant Harris of the of the uh, uh, Royal Army. He in his in his Sherman Firefly killed five Panthers, which were probably the best German tanks of the war. He killed five of them, and he did it with five shots. That's you know, that's the kind of thing most people, the Sherman tank was no match. Well, we put a big gun on it, five German kills with five rounds. So anyway, it was nice to be able to um, help restore that tank to, uh, not to preeminence even, but just to get the, just to get the, the, the dirt off of it. The, the tank was, was amazing. The, the, the thing that was the problem was the doctrine and the politics. There they could have had these um, these big gun Shermans in there, could have had much larger numbers of them and had them much sooner, but uh, U.S. Uh, brass decided that they didn't like the idea of there being a British gun in an American tank, even though the British are using an American tank. They didn't like the idea of a British gun in the American tank, so they dragged their feet on it, and, you know, tankers get killed. My uncle Babe, who was the gentlest man I ever knew, uh, was a Sherman tank, um, Sherman tanker during World War II in Europe, 
and uh, it got fairly dicey there for a while, but in any event, Dave Big Booty says there was a British engine in the Mustang. Indeed, there was, Dave. The um, the American Mustang was uh, was built in an incredibly short time from from the first design to to flying factory models out the door was less than a year and it may have been considerably less than a year but the first mustangs were powered by i want to say allisons and they were noticeably underpowered and then the british said we got this merlin engine that we just put in the spitfires and this thing is a monster it's a 12 cylinder beast you put the merlin engine inside the p51 airframe and you've got the best fighter of the war uh, and there's nothing that sounds like a merlin engine nothing i've heard them go overhead before and it is a hell of a hell of a, a sound Oh my gosh. Uh, Enoch Shackleford said my dad's tank was hit and it killed the guys in the turret. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very genuinely sorry to hear that. You're, obviously, it doesn't matter what tank you're in. You're, if you're in war, you're fighting against a technological enemy like Germany, then you're going to have casualties. But nevertheless, the, the, the planners let them down and the doctrine was ridiculous we need a tank that's primarily rear area interdiction that's what we need it for is to get into the enemy rear and, and blow the, just nuts the the when when they asked about well what do you do against enemy tanks this is the u.s army now in 1942 the army put out a manual for tank tactics for the sherman it's 149 pages and of that 149 pages of the manual you know how many pages were dedicated to tank-to-tank -tank warfare? One. One page of the 49-page manual for the Sherman tank in 1942 dealt with tank-to-tank -tank warfare. So, once again, it's the brass, it's the politicians, it's the political creatures of whatever stripe. You know, well, we don't want the British gun in our tank. It makes us look Okay, well, so guys like... Like uh, this, this gentleman's father's friend, and you know, and most of the guys that my uncle Babe knew, you know, that were killed. They, they, um, they have to pay the price for this. <sighs> anyway, that was fun. Kennedy Space Center was fun too. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, somebody there's there's Cody MacArthur Fett says that I mentioned it before. They didn't a lot of guys didn't want the 76. They liked the 75 because it had a better high explosive round. That's uh, an anti personnel round or soft target round, and they wanted that because they could reload it faster. It was a better round to use against soft targets, and they weren't running into all that many German heavy tanks. It wasn't like the Eastern Front, which was just a three year running tank battle. Um, and over enormous wide open areas. So anyway, um, I love doing this kind of stuff. I love it because it gives me a chance to talk about technical stuff in a kind of a human way. And, uh, and, and mostly I like, I don't like, I, I, I feel it's my duty if I'm able to uh, call people's attention to, to what the people who came before us went through and why. Um, the uh, the Sherman, as I mentioned on the on the recording I just finished, the Sherman did get to go out of World War II in a blaze of glory, however, because um, in the very uh, last days of the war, when finally, finally, the, we broke out, uh, George Patton and the Third Army 
were, were moving across uh, Europe into Germany so fast that the Germans didn't know where they were. Patton was, was moving his third army. He crossed a, basically crossed a continent in, 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 in like lightning. Um, one of the advantages of the Sherman was that it had pretty decent gas mileage for a tank, used a radial engine, the kind of radial engine you see in, um, in uh, like the P-47 or, or the bombers, like the, F, uh, like the B-17. I didn't know that. The Sherman runs on gasoline, which generally has a higher energy content, so you don't have to carry as much fuel. Bad news is gasoline burns like hell. Diesel doesn't burn anything like as 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 uh, fiercely as gasoline does. But in any event, Patton just takes his Shermans and just, yes, and they kept upgrading the engines. There, and I think, I did the count, I think there were 19 different variations of the Sherman tank, and it was built in 10 different places simultaneously. Um, the... Uh, but, but really, the end of the war, the very end of the war, Patton and Sherman tanks and the Third Army was getting to Berlin so fast. They outran their fuel, but American Logistics and Red Ball Express, they're tremendous. So we got them the gas, and they kept on going. And finally, 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 um, uh, the um, uh, Patton and the Third Army were stopped for political reasons by Eisenhower, who... I think I have enormous respect for Eisenhower, but who, who I think was really the person who insisted that the Russians get to take Berlin because of what they'd suffered. And, uh, and so there, there Patton sits. Patton could have gotten into Berlin before the, before the Red Army. And I think you could make a pretty compelling case that a lot of Germans would have surrendered to the Americans that weren't going to surrender to the Soviets after what they did to the Soviets. So anyway, that's history. All right, then. Uh, in other uh, news, uh, somebody pointed out, uh, a couple people in the comments said that um, that the M1 Abrams, which is the best tank in the world, and, and I think is a, a, a reaction to the, to the Sherman on some level, is uh, turbine-powered and that it runs on anything. And that's true. A, a, a jet engine essentially burns kerosene. It'll... And, and while I wouldn't want to do it if I had, you know, a jet that I really liked, it'll run on kerosene, it'll run on probably burn diesel fuel, it just, if it gets hot, it'll burn it. Uh, Deef85 says, I love my M1 Abrams and the Leopard 2. I love the Leopard 2 as well. I built so many models when I was a kid. I, by the time I, the Abrams came along, I wasn't building models anymore, but I remember the first time I saw an M1, and, and uh, the Sherman's probably got the highest profile of any tank ever built. I mean, the thing's just like a two-story house. That's bad because it's easy to hit. And in fact, the Shermans, when, when we sent 4,000 of them to Russia, the roads in Russia were so bad that a lot of times the Shermans would just tip over because their center of gravity was so high. The first time I saw an M1 Abrams and how wide and how low it is in that, just that, that flat armor, uh, and then the, the stabilized gun. I've seen videos of them balancing like a champagne glass or something on the barrel as they go trucking down the street. Very, very impressive. Um, so there's that. Now talk about something else just real quick because it's on my mind. This is a little more topical than we get to the questions. We'll start with the Facebook questions today just to be fair. Um, I mentioned this before on on a segment I did about three or four days into the Ukraine uh, war, 
for Fox Business, same producer. And I mentioned it again today, and I'm just going to mention it now again because uh, different audiences, and I just think it's a very important point, very, very important point. What, what I am seeing as an amateur military analyst is this. Two weapons, and they're very similar, two weapons have not only given the Ukrainians an advantage, I believe two weapons have changed the way that we fight wars. I think it's a revolution in military affairs. It's like once the aircraft carrier arrives, the battleship is useless. Um, and those two weapons are the Stinger uh, air -to -air, uh, ground-to-air missile and the Javelin anti-tank missile. And while this deserves a whole lot more time, and I did give it more time, the short form is if you have an infantryman who can sling an anti-aircraft missile over one shoulder and an anti-tank missile over the other shoulder, then what that one infantryman has done is he has negated the enemy armor and he's negated the enemy air. That's a that is a that is a game changer, gang. If you're trying to stop Russian armor or Soviet armor, a big armored column, if you're trying to stop them, up until now, the solution has been, okay, well, we'll have, a, have to make our own tanks to stop their tanks, and we'll have to have aircraft to, to strike the tanks from above, like the A-10. But the Javelin is so deadly and so portable that you can make the case, and I'm making the case now, that these weapons are making, they are making armor and close air support obsolete. Now, it's not 100%, obviously, but on paper, the Russian army is, and air force is just so superior, and the Ukrainians keep holding them off. And the reason they're holding them off is because they're shooting them down. They're not shooting them down with, with, their, with their MiGs. They may have gotten a couple of MiG kills, but they're shooting them down with stingers, with, with man pads, man portable air defense systems. They're just, and down go the helicopters. And now, if you think about it, uh, a javelin is not uh, cheap, and neither is a stinger, but they're a lot cheaper than a tank, and they're a lot cheaper than an aircraft. And if you've got a guy in the bushes with one of these each, this guy has essentially neutralized the enemy armor and the enemy air force. Not just, if you think about it bigger, it's not just that he killed a tank or killed a helicopter or a plane. He has... He has neutralized the entire idea of armor, and he's neutralized the entire idea of close air support. That's astonishing, astonishing. And w w the good news there, I think, is what that's showing is, is that since this is working so well in Ukraine, it is, it is telling me that it's going to, that one of the lessons of this is, and, and uh, Dennis, uh, J.N. Uh, said, he beat me to it, he says that the age of armor is dead. If, if you manufacture enough of these weapons, it becomes virtually impossible to invade a country. Right? When we, I, I lived through the Cold War, I did a 14-piece segment on the Cold War, and the Cold War was about what will we do to stop, what, 60,000 Russian tanks or 40,000, I don't remember what the number was, but it was a lot of them. What do we do to stop them? Well, we need tanks and they got to be better and we need... A-10s and stuff. No. If you've got a guy behind every bush with a, with a javelin, that's the end of the, of the threat. And it's much harder to kill a guy in a bush than it is to kill a tank. It may seem counterintuitive because if somebody's shooting at you, it's kind of nice to have the armor, but 
a, a guy can hide in a foxhole and hide behind a bush, and a tank can't do that, neither can a helicopter. So, um, so there you go. Now, uh, uh, sorry, Pat drives black goat. Pat drives a black goat. It says, do fighter jets have alarms for being walked on by a stinger, or is that just movie BS? Uh, aircraft, the stinger is an infrared uh, missile, heat-seeking missile. And the way the stinger works is you launch it in the general direction of the incoming aircraft. It, it replaced a, a, a system called the Red Eye, I think. Red Eye? Red Wing? Red Eye? No, Red Wing. And the problem with the previous system was you could only shoot that at, at the jet exhaust. So with the previous system we had, man portable air system, you had to wait till that jet went over and passed you and then shoot it from behind. And if you think about it, if you're on the ground and there's a, a, a attack helicopter or a, or a ground support airplane coming at you and shooting rockets and bombs and, and bullets at you, it's nice to shoot him down before he gets here. So the, so the stinger picks up the target, it flies towards the target, it anticipates where the target's gonna be, makes constant adjustments, then when it gets close enough, the infrared seeker head takes over and kaboom. Um, but there's no warning conventional doctrine is, okay, we're going to invade Ukraine and we're Russia. All right, so we'll do what Russia did in the first two or three days. Cruise missile strikes against against Ukrainian air defense batteries. First picture I saw of the Ukraine war was a big old van with a radar dish that had been burned out and then a couple of missiles that had been smashed. That's a traditional air defense installation, longer range. But once those things light up their radars, then, at least in terms of American doctrine, you, you actually have guys in, in a mission called Iron Hand Mission, and you actually send guys out there uh, with electronic jammers like, uh, like uh, the Prowlers and, the, and the, the Hornet variations and stuff, and you want them to light up. You kind of, kind of, hey, here I come. And the second that those ground stations light up their radar, then harm missile goes right down that radar beam and takes out the whole thing. None of this applies to the Stinger, none of it. It does have, the jets, to answer your question, jets have uh, a radar warning receiver that tells them when radar is locking onto them and where it's coming from. And it also has a system that can detect the plume of, of an infrared missile, but you don't get any warning. And this little puppy, which is only about 10 feet long, who am I kidding? The Stinger's five, five and a half feet long and about that wide. And um, and if you're hiding in a bush and that thing goes anywhere, you know, with five miles maximum range, if it comes by you at two miles, it's going to be doing two and a half times the speed of sound when it gets there. By the time that thing is out of the tube and, and on the target, you generally don't have time to, relax, to, to defend against it. So anyway, uh, the world is changing. And, um, and despite all of the horror and all the rest of it, regardless of what side you're on on this thing. I think the huge lesson from the Ukraine war is going to be that you simply can't invade another country anymore. You just this idea that, the, that you can just launch armored invasion with close air support. I think the Stinger and the Javelin and the British version of the Javelins called the in-laws, I think these weapons have changed the game because now all you need is a brave guy. And to be perfectly honest with you, he doesn't even have to be all that brave. I'm being facetious here, but the previous version of the Stinger, the Red Red Wing, 
you had to hope that this guy didn't kill you on the incoming pass, and then you'd shoot at him on the way out. Now with the stinger, you shoot it, and you run for the bushes. Fire and forget. <laughs> Drop the thing and go. Same thing for the javelin. Once that javelin locks onto the tank, you push that trigger. It comes Every time I've ever seen a javelin fire, it looks like a misfire because it's just the way the thing's designed. There's a little charge that pushes, that pushes the, the actual missile out of the tube, and it's just a little charge. So every single time you see a, a javelin launch, it looks like it goes, and looks like it just comes, just going to fall right onto the ground right in front of you. And just before it's main rocket goes off, comes in from the top where the arm is thinnest. But the javelin is fire and forget. The, um, previously, we used to use a tow missile, which is, which is guided by wire, and it's flown into the target by the, by the soldier. I mean, he, he sees the thing through the scope, and he pushes the button, and out goes the tow, and there's a, like, a, like a phosphorescent kind of bright tail to the thing. And it's just unspooling this wire, and he's flying that thing in there. He's flying it, and he's have to fly it all the way. And every time I see a video of a wire-guided tow tank kill, I'm amazed that he was able to hit it. Because the, the missile's going, boom. The problem with that is, once you launch the missile, you've got to stay out there exposed for the flight time. And as they like to say in the military, tracers point both ways. So if you've got a guy with a toe and he's flying a missile towards you, you may not be able to respond, but the guy behind you can put put some rounds on where that where that smoke trail came from with with the javelin. And I'm out of here. Goodbye. Taking the taking the bus, and I'm heading. Anyway, uh, that's that's what I did today. So that was fun. Quick question for the comments section. I'm virtually sure, but I I, I lose track of time. Honestly, I'm just, I just I can't remember what day it is, or having enough time, hard enough time remembering where I live. Um, understanding there's going to be a six or seven second delay. When I did the last Stratosphere Lounge, did I show the rendered video of me holding the torch of, 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 uh, I'm pretty sure I did, but did, can, can I get the, a word back from our live audience here? There's a rendering of me basically holding a torch with a motion capture suit. Did I show that last week? I think I did. Curious. Yep, I did. Okay, good. So, uh, nothing new to show now. Uh, anyway. Uh, I got a lot of stuff in the in the bag. Uh, last uh, little uh, subject, because we always go around the patch a little bit before we get questions. I was just, I've been just banging my head against the wall here. Do it again, says David Bree. I'll do it again if I've got it. If I don't got it, I ain't going to do it. Let me see if I put it on the desktop, because otherwise I'm not going to waste time. Oh, man. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, it's gone. I'll show it next. I'll show you something fun next week. Uh, oh, and, and uh, CP Tones wants to know about the uh, Dichter Van Doomcock video. Shot it two weeks ago now. I haven't seen it. Uh, I know that uh, Doomcock is having, um, you know, he's just having a rough time sometimes, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pressure him. Um, uh, we shot it. I thought it was good. He thought it was good. So, I mean, if I don't see anything for another three weeks, I might tickle him on it, but. He said he needed to do some editing on it, and it's different than what he usually does, so I'm just going to let him uh, make that decision. I'm certainly not in any need to, uh, to press him on it. Um, so anyway, uh, 
I've been been talking about this animation for years now, and got the new motion capture suit. It's giving me better data, more accurate data than the original suit I had. It is a hundred times easier to put on. But it, the data still needs cleaning up. So it's it's jittery. The sensors are are either measuring too many micro motions or they're or they're just they're just you know not quite locked in. Um, and so you have to send this motion capture data out to be cleaned up. And basically what they do is they keep all the major stuff, like all the moves, and they just take the little keyframes that are causing the jitter out, just kind of smooth it out. Well, I sent that out to three or four people online thinking this will be a slam dunk. It's just motion capture cleanup. One of them came back where they cleaned up essentially all the motion, just took the motion out. You know, it was certainly cleaner. Uh, Another one told me they had to re-rig the model in order to do it, and it's like, you know, honestly, I just sometimes think that I am being fated to have to do this by myself. Um, I, I just do. And I suppose in the long run, that's not bad. Things that were stymieing me even two, three months ago, I just do automatically now. But now I'm going to have to do motion capture cleanup. Okay. Um, but I have very limited time. I've got I've got to get this sales pitch out to uh, all of you fine people out there who are watching. And uh, I've had the finished chapter one since November. And um, I've I've done the animation for the um, for the uh, going up to the to the dungeon door and seeing the parchment that says uh, uh, thou must be wearing a visor in order to enter this dungeon by order of Dr. Faustus, chief apothecary and steward of the realm. I got that done. I've got the encounter with the feral Ocasio's done. Um, and I'm, I'm moving faster now, much faster. Uh, Scorch says, Bill, I have a few friends who do some animation work single-handed. I can try to shoot your contact if you'd like. I trust them. Excellent. Thank you, Scorch. If you could send that to um, info at billwhittle.com and just uh, say that I that you, that we talked about it on the um, on the Stratosphere Lounge, I would really appreciate that because I need to find somebody who can do it. It's tedious. And, and one of the reasons this has taken so long is that I shouldn't be doing the tedious stuff. I should be doing the stuff that, you know, I should be the, I've got these... I got a good script, and I'm and I'm very pleased with the direction, the camera angles, all that stuff. But when you have to bend every single finger, and I do, then it turns out that a lot of time um, gets lost. I've got a motion capture file, a, a stock animation, and the guy's walking along with the sword, but he's not holding a sword, and his hand is like this, and I have to go in there. And I have to take uh, this bone and bend it 40 degrees. And then I have to take this bone and bend it another 40 degrees. And I have to take that bone and bend it 30 degrees. And I have to do the same with this and with that and with that. And, blah, 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 and do all this other stuff. Now he's holding the sword. But that takes, you know, it takes time. Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much, Scorch. And whether he can do it or not, anything I can do to get this off my shoulders would help. It's, um, it's... Uh, it's a big deal. I'm not using a, Marisha knows something about this, says are you using IK? Uh, IK is inverse kinematics. Um, when you started, when I started animation in the 90s, you would have joints on the arms and if you wanted to move the hand up, 
you have to rotate the arm and then you have to rotate the forearm, which I just did last night a hundred times for some other animation I had to add some life to. Move the arm up, keyframe it. Move the forearm down, keyframe it. Extend the finger, keyframe it. And then move the arm back up again and do these other things. Inverse kinematics means I can grab the finger and just pull it and, and all of the, um, all of the, the joint motions uh, work well. I'm, look, I'm not, I'm not an animator. I'm a terrible animator. Um, I'm a good director and I know what I want and I've taken pre-existing animation files and now some of the ones I've done myself and it's doing what I want it to do but I'm, I'm a terrible animator really really terrible um, anyway all right there we go so um, that's it uh, for many weeks now um, we have been uh, doing the um, members uh, questions first, which is appropriate. But we have also, uh, for several weeks now, not gotten to the Facebook questions at all. So I'm gonna do those tonight. And then I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna go home and vibrate for a while until I calm down. Uh, and we'll get to the members again next week. We'll get to, we'll, any questions members may have left for this week, we'll get to those next week and we'll get the other ones as well. So let's see what's going on in the fabulous world of, uh, of Meta, that reptile. He's just a, he's a scary guy. And Bill Gates is a scary, scary guy. All of these guys are, are, are barking mad. They're all, all of them have Asperger's and all of them are, are malignant narcissists. And those are their good points. All right, here we go. So looking at the questions on uh, on Facebook. Let me refresh that page. <sighs> Still, for all the bitching and moaning I do, which is pretty much nonstop, this is an amazing life. I, you know, I put in a lot of time, a lot of time. But I haven't been to work in 12, 13 years. Uh, so let's see what we got. There we go. Six more comments. In order, here we go. Trevor Duell. Hi, Bill. I'm Trevor. Why aren't there more conservatives in the arts? Is it an endeavor that seems to appeal more to those on the left? Are the conservatives just closeted? I know there are more than a few gigs I wouldn't have gotten had I really spoken my mind on social media, like those on the left feel so comfortable doing. In most orchestra rehearsals, I often feel like a black sheep. I think we might have covered this a little bit last time. I certainly went into this on some level on a, on a virtue signal I shot yesterday with Zoe called uh, Fellowship. Um, Evan Sayet wrote a book called uh, uh, The Kindergarten of Eden. And it is, without question, the most important book ever written about how the left works. It, because Evan, like me, is is in show business, and like me, he comes from that. We 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 didn't start off as you know rock rib conservatives. We were just part of the um, part of the crowd. I was one of the filmmaking crowds. I was a theater major. Evan was, did a lot of stand up work, and we didn't start thinking until we started thinking. So he knows what it's about, and that book is universally excellent. But the thing I remember most about that book was a term that. Evan coined, I think, called, um, he said that the left has rhetorical intelligence. 
They don't have practical intelligence. I'm not talking about IQ, and I don't mean to define down the word intelligence, which has been defined down the same way that genius and heroism has been. But maybe aptitude's a better word. I don't know. This is the constant and, and extremely interesting discussion is does an artistic personality pull you towards liberal politics or, or do liberal politics tend to make you less serious? I, I got to think it's the first one. Um, and I am, to my, to my knowledge, I can't think of another example personally, really do think I'm unique in one sense. And that is that I have a very solid background in, in both of these domains, you know. I've got, a, I've got enough of an engineering background to talk like I just did at the beginning of this show. Where are we now? 40 minutes on things like the Sherman tank and stuff. That requires, you know, that requires a practical mind that's, that's kind of left brain engineering stuff. And at the same time, for some miracle, I also seem to have the artistic sensibility and the rhetorical skill to be able to do the kind of things that the left does. So I don't say it much anymore, but when I started doing this, I said I was a day walker, you know, I'm a vampire that kills other vampires. Um, so I am a person whose entire mental space belongs in the world of fantasy. When I'm left alone and doing the stuff I really want to do, I'm, I'm writing science fiction. And, and when I'm writing science fiction and, and, and producing science fiction, I cannot believe the fountain of really, at least I think they're completely original. I haven't heard anything like any of these things, just, just gushes. And at the same time, I've learned how to discipline myself so that I keep the... I keep the fantasy and the, and the idealism and the utopianism and all that other stuff, I keep that on the artistic page. And then in the real world, I do my level best to take all of that out of the system and just strain the information and try to determine what's actually real. Um, now, speaking of somebody who was a theater major, you're talking about the left and you're, you're a musician, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, my experience has been, and I'm guilty of this myself, I think this is essentially what all performance art is. Actors become actors because they find other written characters to be more interesting than they are. And, and there is case after case after case of situations where really excellent actors are extraordinarily boring people Writers, and again, I'm speaking for myself, but I think uh, John Hughes is probably the best example of this. Writers are motivated by a desire to set right their childhoods or set right their history or, or something. Um, you know, every John Hughes movie features uh, the nerdy guy getting the girl or at least some variation of that. And that's not just John Hughes. And that doesn't happen in real life. It just doesn't. The, 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 the cheerleader never falls for the geeky guy. Never, ever, 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 ever. Never happens. So why do we think it can happen? Well, we think it can happen because the geeky guys grew up 
and started writing about what they wanted their their lives to be like. They go back and kind of correct their own, you know, pain and, and experiences. And yes, I was ignored. And yes, I was taken advantage of. And yes, 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 I was an outsider and a dork and all the rest of it. I hated myself for it, blah, 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 blah. But now I can fix it. This is a pathology that writers have. And if you... Oh, Mobile Moto gets extra points here. I am an engineer and scored two cheerleaders before 21. I'm proud of you. I bet you didn't do it by talking about engineering, though. Um, so, and, and Eric says, to be fair, Bill, you got a pretty lady yourself. I have the pretty lady. And that's because of the emotional side, primarily. Um, so back to the question. This trying to fix your own past is a, is a pathology that you have to consciously break. And if you don't, the end result is the Mary Sue. For those of you who, few of you who may be unfamiliar with the term, uh, in especially in science fiction and fantasy, science fiction more than anything, we call an all-powerful character a Mary Sue. And... Um, and Ray in the latest Star Wars movies is a Mary Sue. A Mary Sue is a character that has all of the powers immediately. Never had to earn them, never went through the hardship necessary to gain uh, these powers, never had a personality formed through, through trial and, and, and failure. The ultimate expression of wanting to rewrite your, your own personal history is to, is to take your protagonist and make them perfect. Because that's what you—that's what you want, you know. You want your perfect hero, and your perfect hero does perfect things, and he represents what you want to be. He's the idealized version of you. And if you don't cure yourself of this particular pathology, you're going to write the most boring characters in that it's possible to write. No one's interested in a person that can do everything immediately without any cost, and and by attaching Ray's name to Skywalker or attaching Michael Burnham's name to Spock, she's Spock's unmentioned half-sister, it's, it's stolen valor. You're, you're pinning on medals that you didn't earn. So the challenge for writers is to understand that in order to make your character not just likable but lovable, you've got to get them dirty. And um, and that means they got to fail, and it also means they have to have serious flaws. They have to have moral flaws. They have to, they have to have something to overcome. A and if they don't, then who cares? Luke Skywalker starts out as this real shallow, whiny crybaby. But I want to go to the academy. I've just been another year. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Okay, that's what you got. He's he's impulsive. He's brave but he's not very bright and, and has no experience in the world. And over the course of three movies, he becomes the kind of guy that says, I'm going to put my sword down. I don't need the sword to defeat you. That's called an arc because things change. So again, back to your question about liberals and conservatives and their politics. People who live in that kind of fantasy world gravitate towards left-wing politics because left-wing politics are about wish fulfillment. You could write that down, actually. Uh, leftism and liberalism 
is about wish fulfillment. Uh, when, when communism was a big deal in the last century, you had tremendous, not only wealth disparity because of, of early stage capitalism, but you had workers living in horrific conditions. Just think about London in the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, just, just appalling. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm from there. Not from London, but from coal miners uh, in um, Lancashire. I mean, I looked at my genealogy and virtually all of them from my grandfather before them 13 children living in a single, you know, one, one, you know, one little tiny little house in a row of houses and coal miners and mill workers and all the rest of it. So there was a dream that, hey, we should all be able to live better. It turned out capitalism was what provided that, but it was a, rom it was a romantic thing. And, and even when the, the murder and all the rest of it from the Soviet Union came out, some people were so attached emotionally to the idea that they couldn't see it or they wouldn't see it and they stayed uh, they stayed red diaper babies till the day they died and that's just plain bad um so if you're an emotionally inclined person especially if you're an emotionally needy person then liberalism really appeals to you because it gives you the emotional cookie. You're a good person if you're a liberal. If you're not a liberal, then you're a bad person. And the, and the fact of the matter is, all of their policies do harm, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we actually harm the people we claim to care about. What matters is, do we feel good about doing this? And that is a function of insecurity, right? I'm insecure about myself, so if all the smart people are talking about global warming and all the rest of this stuff, then I'm going to talk about that too because I want to look smart. And if I'm and if I'm going to be backing Democratic parties in the inner, uh, in the inner cities, and have 8,000 blacks murdered a year in America's cities, uh, and and the narrative is that it's the Republicans that are the racists and the Democrats are the kind people, then I'll be a Democrat and vote Democrat even if it murders people makes me feel good. Conservatives, on the other hand, I think are not just more practical. I, I think, look, I know this is a, a in most cases, I, I abhor this kind of thing because it's a cheap shot. But seriously, now, honestly, conservatives are just much more sane than liberals are. Liberalism, this, this thing about liberalism is a mental illness. It's a, there's a fair amount of truth to that because you have to be a walking ball of neuroses to have the ability to feel good about something be more important to you than being able to actually do good. That's a, that's a narcissistic, neurotic quality. The conservatives that I know are always swimming upstream and they're always doing or speaking about things that seem unpopular because they're real. For example, you would think that if you have a bunch of poor people, if you gave them money, then they won't be poor anymore. And we've tried doing that, and it doesn't work. Now, there are ways that'll work, but if you come out and say, look, if this worked, I'd be behind it, but it doesn't, so I'm not, then people, you, 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 you hate poor people and you, and you just want them to starve in the streets. No, the, the things that will help people are often difficult things. That's what tough love is. And, um, and they don't have the they don't have the 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 
almost said intestinal fortitude, but it's, it's stronger than that. They don't have the sense of self necessary to be seen to be doing something bad. So, since they all feel this way, and since, since so much of entertainment, people who are drawn to entertainment, there's a strong, strong commonality. In fact, I don't, I'm not personally aware of anybody that I know who doesn't have this to some degree or another. And that is that one of the qualities that people go into show business have is this overwhelming desire to be loved and to be, and to be shown that they're loved. Usually that comes from having, in fact, again, I can't think of any personal exceptions. That comes from basically uh, having a, 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 a parenting vacuum. There was something you didn't get when you were very young. You didn't get enough attention, didn't get enough love, and so you spend the rest of your life looking for that applause. I've got this in spades. And everybody else I know who, um, who's deep into show business and the arts has this. That's why they do it. Um, and all you have to do to prove this theory is to take a look at the... It's nice to be able to say that Hollywood is, is irrelevant now. It wasn't three, four years, but it is now. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. But when I was an editor back in 2007 and 2008, uh, doing Sunday morning shootout, we would, the whole world was like, oh my God, it's award seasons. What's the word we used? Um, kudos, it's kudos season. There's the Academy Awards. There's the Golden Globes. There's the Screen Actors Guild Award, the Writers Actors Guild Award. There's the Directors Guild Award. There's all these awards where all of these famous rich people get together and applaud each other and bask in the love of their colleagues and also in the love of the, of the great unwashed out there in, in television. They're, that's what they do. So when people say, why is it the conservatives can't make good movies, the, the fundamental answer is, is that the people who, who are attracted to conservative politics because they have enough sense of self and enough connection to reality to be able to understand that things don't that things don't happen the way you want them to, and that there is no good option sometimes. Sometimes only a bad option and a worse option. If you got the mental and 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 character fortitude to believe that, then chances are you are rooted enough in reality that you don't have the ability to do what creative. And when I say creative, I believe, I believe engineers are creative. I believe. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about creative in, in terms of the, you know, the big C, capital C creative people in, in the arts. Practical people don't have the ability to, to drift the way that creative people do. Um, and that's what it's all about. It's the ability to drift. Um, it's nice that I can live in both of these worlds because when I was in college, uh, all of my actor friends asked me to do their science homework and all of my science friends and engineering friends asked me to do their humanities homework. Um, so I can, I can see both sides of this. The aspect that creative people do have that's really wonderful is because they're not tethered to reality, they can imagine new, I don't want to say new realities because that's not it. They can imagine a new vision, a new take, a new angle, a new something or other. They can give you a creative experience. I haven't seen that before. They can give you creative insight. Like guys like Robert Heinlein, for example, give you tremendous insight into the human condition because they're able to disconnect themselves from the real world that they live in. All of my headspace, strangely enough, 
and I and I guess you know I never really quite thought about it quite so clearly. But the two things I do with when I'm alone, well, I don't want to say about the three things I do, but the two things I do when I'm alone in terms of uh, brain power is I I I fantasize about science fiction and what I would like the world to be and how I would like it to be and the things I'd like to do, like explore strange new worlds. And the other thing I do with my brain is I read nothing but history because history is the antidote to, to that. Science fiction and imagination and all that other stuff is cutting loose from reality and 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 the, the the looser you get the 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 looser those ties the further you get to float and and see cool new things and bring it back in uh, history on the other hand reminds you again and again and again that people don't change that your utopian society or utopian ideas are going to have to be built by actual human beings which means that they're going to be flawed doesn't mean they're going to be bad it just means they're going to be flawed and i I'm an idealist, and I'm also, ex I think, I try to be anyway, extremely objective and extremely practical. And one of the problems that I'm seeing now in politics in the world is, is, is real simple, really. The American system of private property, free markets, individual liberty guaranteed by law, respect for the individual, is the as good as life has ever gotten on this planet, by far. But there are always people that want to exert control over other people. And the problem is, is that the people who don't want to control other people mind their own business. And while they're minding their own business, these sons of bitches are minding your business. And so how do you get around that? How do you get around that? I'm thinking, well, okay, watchdogs. You need watchdogs. You need you need not sheepdogs, watchdogs. You need people to watch to make sure that nobody's encroaching on this stuff. But being a watchdog means you have power. And if you have power, then you'll be corrupted by power. If you're not corrupted, then somebody who wants to have the power of a watchdog will take your job downstream. And so there you are, you're back again, right? The short answer to all of this in terms of practical solutions, and I'm more convinced of this every single day, is the only hope that we have to, to limit this genetic defect of, well, we're the ones with the genetic defect. People trying to rule other people goes back as long as there's good people. But I think the best defense is small. I think the smaller things are, the more local they are, the more honest they will be. Uh, I uh, have a, a bank which is, well, I'm not going to name it, but it's got a stagecoach for a logo. Um, that's a gigantic bank. And that gigantic bank, like all other gigantic banks, is doing things like dealing with derivatives and all of these financial instruments. And, and, and whatever money I've deposited there doesn't exist anymore. It's not there. It's, it's not even invested. It's, it's just a number now. It's, it's, it's something that gives uh, stagecoach bank a chance to have enough of a, of, a, of a financial reputation to go and do all these other things that the very bright people have figured out that have no value whatsoever. And so the way you get around things like banking crises is you go to a, a bank, not a bank chain, a bank. You know, you go to, um, you go to, um, uh, you know, 
to George Bailey's Savings and Loan. Because George Bailey's Savings and Loan doesn't have billions of dollars. And George Bailey's Savings and Loan from It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey knows every single person that's putting their money in the bank. They do it because they trust George. And George not only does not have the means of taking that money and going out and doing lunatic things with him, he doesn't have the inclination. He is a local guy, and he is the banker for the neighborhood in the same way that another guy would be the sheriff, and another guy would be the undertaker, and another guy would be the, you know, the, the other guy. So the more centralized, not even centralized, it, it is centralized. The bigger things get, the easier it is to steal. And the bigger things get, the higher the stakes, and the more people are drawn to controlling those systems and corrupting them. I am, it's going to be tough in California and, and, and it's getting tough anywhere in America, but seriously, um, I am going to make a, a major effort now to find the smallest bank that I can. That's not going to protect us, unfortunately, if the world economic system goes down. Uh, and it's going to, um, because we owe $30 trillion, which will never be paid back. Europe owes $45 trillion in public pension liabilities. It's, it's, it, it's not going to last, and it can't last. That's what the Great Reset's all about, by the way. If you're wondering why these um, people like Schwab and the World Economic Forum like that term, the Great Reset, I was able to foresee this 10 years ago, although not quite so clearly. Once we started getting into trillions of dollars of debt, I said, there's no way that this money will ever be paid back. There's no way that the, that the United States government, this is how it would work with real accounting. If you're $30 trillion in debt, then what you have to do to pay that debt off is, you have to tax people enough so that you have billions and billions of dollars in surplus. That's never going to happen. And it's just, it's just not. So when these guys are talking about the big reset, what they're talking about is there's going to come a time and it's going to come relatively soon where essentially the system is going to collapse. And then what they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, we're going to take a giant debt holiday. All right. And this is also why they bring up things like the universal uh, living wage, right? You put all your money into savings or you put all your money into a retirement account or your, your retirement is in mutual funds and stuff. Well, those funds are gone. Your money's gone. It's gone. So we'll give you a stipend, which will function the same as your retirement account. And we'll keep it coming to you, but you can't save it and you can't invest it. It's just, here's, here's your food pellet. Because if we don't give you the food pellet, you'll come and pull us out of our skyscrapers and, 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 and beat us up with pitchforks. So this is, this is what they're going to do. They're, they have spent, they have taken our money, which the, which the people of the world have invested in banks with the understanding that I bought a piece of the company and if I want to sell it, I should get my piece of the company back. You can still do that, but not for long. And you will, you can still go to your bank and assuming you have relatively small resources, you can withdraw all your money from that bank, but not for long. All of that money is gone. They spent it. And it's gone to these financial companies and the, and the super rich. I can't believe I'm talking like this because this sounds to me like, you know, like, sounds to me like, you know, Occupy Wall Street crowd. But I'm beginning to realize that there's a lot of truth to this. Now, if they'd only realize that the government is, is, is the half of the problem, 
then we'd realize that really activists on the left and the right really have more in common than not. We think big business is relatively better way to go than big government. They think the opposite. No, they're not, they're not opposed to each other now. Big government and big business are working together to take everything. So what we're starting to see now, I think, is we're starting to see the ultra-rich taking their, their financial capital and moving it out of the financial markets and starting to buy actual real-world things. So if you have a feeling like the stock market, not forget the stock market, the entire world economic system, if you think it's got another two years or so, now's the time to take your billions of dollars and start buying billions of dollars of land, billions of dollars of houses, billions of dollars of gold, billions of dollars of something that's going to survive when all of these numbers get reset to zero. And then what will have happened is we will have taken all of our wealth, which is what we get for our work, all of the work that we've done on our lives, which is what we get paid for, that money will have evaporated, which means it will have gone to them, and and they're going to just simply, they're going to zero everything out. And you would think that would hurt the rich more than it would hurt you, except that if you've got a, a pension fund or a retirement fund, when that reset comes, your money's gone. It's gone. Uh, and I would say I'm not a financial advisor, to say the least. In fact, I probably could be considered an anti-financial advisor. But I'm not entirely sure that cash will survive this. I do know, I do know that, that the people who are responsible for this greatest theft in human history want you to get away from cash. They want everything to be digital. They don't want any cash transactions because cash is something that they can't zero. And if you think that this sounds a little conspiracy-ish, I would refer you to Canada a month and, month and a half, two months ago, where individual citizens had all of their resources frozen or zeroed or removed at the flick of a switch, click of a mouse, everything you own is gone. And your truck is gone. And the insurance on your truck is gone. And the title to your house is gone. Why? Because Justin Trudeau got a little worried and he decided he wanted to have your entire life savings and, and all of the things that you've worked for vaporized. They're gone. What do you mean they're gone? They're gone. Your account doesn't exist anymore. I had seven, I had $70,000 of savings in that account. Well, you did. Not anymore because... You showed up with a bunch of people waving flags, and we didn't like that, so your money's gone. <coughs> if you do that to everybody in the world, you're going to have people very, very angry. And they're going to come after the people that made these larcenies. And so they're going to have to offer you something to pacify you. And what I think is going to happen, from what I've been studying an awful lot lately, is that we're getting prepped for the big reset, the great reset. They've been talking about this since, well, a decade, but really since COVID. The great reset. The great reset is coming. What does the great reset mean? I've often wondered, what, what, re, what are we resetting? Are we resetting our political system? Yes, but mostly what we're resetting is we're resetting our, our, our economic system. All of that 30,000 billion dollars that has been spent 
and has gone into people's pockets in one way or another, that's going to get clicked to zero. The people who I've read who are talking about this say one of the ways they'll do that to sell it to you is you'll get to zero your debts out too. Everybody will zero out their debts. We'll have a debt holiday. Hooray, nobody owes anything anymore. Oh, great. I don't know my, I don't know car payments anymore. No. Nope. Okay, fantastic. Think of all the things I can buy. Well, buy with what? Well, with all my money now. I don't have, I don't have any debts anymore. Well, the reason you don't have any debts anymore is because you don't have any money anymore. It's all gone. That's what I think is happening. And how that affects to uh, orchestra people being um, uh, more liberal than conservative? Well, it's a long journey to get there. But the financial world, for quite a while now, has been populated by people who have magical thinking. They think that something like a collateralized debt obligation, which is what caused the crash in 2008, they think that taking all of these bad debts and bundling together and selling them to somebody else and getting rich off of it, they think that that is an economy. It's not. It's, a, it's, it's the world's giant Ponzi scheme. It's, it's the reason. See, this is the kind of thing I do think about. How do you build a society that, that, that gets around these kind of things without without forcing people to do things. When you get right down to it, the reason that we owe $30 trillion, really, really the root, root, root cause of everything, is something that uh, people in the financial market charmingly call uh, the greater fool theory. And the greater fool theory is, I'm going to buy something that I think is, that I know is worthless, but I'm convinced I can find somebody who will buy it, because they're a greater fool than I am. And that's where you end up taking the kind of risks that you take. If the people buying weren't such greedy fools, then you'd never be able to sell this junk, and you'd have a fundamentally safe and functional economy, as we did when we were on the gold standard. And the reason the gold standard worked, and Nixon took us off it in 1972, the reason this country was healthy for 200 years was very simple. It's not because, it's not because before 72 there were no crooks. It's not before 72 there were no greedy people. It's none of that. It's because before 1972, the dollar was pegged on gold. You could take a dollar and get some gold, a dollar's worth of gold back. And the reason that that worked is you can't print gold, period. That's it. You cannot print gold. You can print paper money. You can multiply zeros in a bank account digitally, but you can't print gold. And once you take the, the medium of exchange away from something tangible that can't be that cannot be just cranked out of a machine, then then everything's done. You're just you're just done. Done. So when you I didn't know this until ten years ago, when um when my friend Jeremy Boring bought a house and he explained to me that when he bought his house he, he spent better part of three hours signing his name I think in he, I think he said it was 45 or 50 places on his on his mortgage. He had to sign like 45 times. It used to be I am going to borrow this amount of money. I agree to pay it back at this interest rate over this amount of time sign a bill with it. Now you have to sign 45 different things and he explained to me that the way our financial system works is you would think 
because this makes sense. Practical people understand this. I would like to buy a house. Okay. It's Los Angeles. How much does the house cost? $500,000. The bank says, you would like to borrow $500,000 to buy this house? Yes, I would. The bank then looks at your credit rating. They look at, has, has he paid off his bills before? Yes, he's done a pretty good job. Does he make enough money to be able to pay back the amount of money that we're going to charge him on a, on a 10 or 20, 30 year mortgage? Yes, he appears to have enough income to cover this. Okay, we make a living by charging interest on the money that we loan. We think he's a good risk. Here's your check for $500,000 and the bank is out $500,000. $500,000 has gone from the bank's account to the account of the guy who owns the house. The bank's down 500 grand and the bank is betting on this guy paying monthly payments that will equal 500 grand and then another 10% or whatever, and that's how they make their money. But when the interest rates are 0.01%, and when the interest rates are flat to keep inflation down, and in fact, in Europe, interest rates are negative. Instead of charging you to borrow money, people pay you to borrow money. Then, then the entire business model of a bank goes right out the window. But what, what Jeremy said to me was, while you would think that's what a mortgage consists of, that's not what happens now. Now, if I go to the bank and say, I'd like, I'd like to buy this house for $500,000, whether the bank gives me the loan or not, put that aside for a minute, let's say they do. It's no longer $500,000 has come out of the bank vault of my bank and gone into the hands of the guy that, that owns the house. The guy that owns the house is gonna get $500,000, but those $500,000 are invented the second I sign that mortgage, $500,000 appears out of air. It doesn't come out of the bank's account. It's fiated into existence. Here's 500 grand. How, how did you, wh where did it come from? It comes from the mortgage. The mortgage has a value of $500,000. So we've just invented $500,000 to cover what the cost of your payments are. But you're not out any money. Yeah, we noticed that. And it's been going on for a long time now. So. We are in uh, some deep doo-doo. And I think, honestly, uh, we need to, let me click on a link here. We need to start facing up to it and figuring out what we're gonna do once this actually happens. Because it's human nature to think, nah, we're not gonna hit that iceberg. Yeah, we're going, we're going you know, full speed, 27 knots or something. There's an ice field out there, but the chances of hitting an iceberg pretty slim, really. We'll, we'll probably be fine. We got uh, we've got problems with the O-rings on our on our uh, on our um, solid rocket boosters, but they they've managed to hold, so we'll probably be fine. We've had foam hitting the tile on the orbiter, but you know it, it hasn't caused us any problems before. I mean, you know, it's something to worry about, I guess, but we'll be fine. And we're fine until we're not fine, and then all of a sudden we look back and we say, oh, could have seen that iceberg coming for. 40 miles in three and a half hours. We just sailed right into it. Moving on. Hey, it's Eric Blake. Hail Vectron. Hail Vectron. Bill, here's something interesting. Good. I like interesting things. When you return to the lounge after your dealings with an unspecified virus of unknown origin, you discussed your research into Jack the Ripper. Hooray, I like it already. Here's a little known fact of which you may not have been aware. Dr. Joseph Bell, mentor, sir, mentor to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and the direct in inspiration for Sherlock Holmes was actually called in to assist the Yard in the investigation of the killings. There's no record of what Dr. Bell's conclusions were, but we do know 
that following his participation in the case, the canonical killing stopped. There's a claim, by the way, that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle assisted Dr. Bell the, and was the Watsons to his homes. What do you think? I'm glad you asked. I was an amateur ripperologist, and the fact that there's such a word as a ripperologist means that this subject has been so controversial for so long, and people have such an enormous emotional investment in this issue. Who was Jack the Ripper? It's the greatest unsolved mystery in history, in crime, right? If they caught the guy, he'd just be another mass murderer. The reason that Jack the Ripper is Jack the Ripper is they never caught him. Nobody knew who he was. He committed acts of horrific violence. And, and because of this, he has been a figure that every single person who has an interest in these kind of things have tried to determine who did it. And there have been 300 plus candidates submitted as, as who Jack the Ripper actually was. Before the Ripper, Eric um, mentioned the canonical murders. So in canon, canon means official. In, in, in science fiction and fantasy, canonical means it came from a studio, so it's, it's true. In this particular context, canonical means agreed upon. Official is pretty close to the word. So there were five canonical murders that virtually everybody agrees was committed by the same guy. But there were an additional series of seven, eight, nine murders that went on around that time that are the subject of debate. Was this the same guy? Was it not? We can all agree on these five canonical murders. But what about the other ones? There was a series of mass murders that slightly preceded the five canonical murders and extended past them called the, uh, the, Thames, the, the Thames uh, Torso Murders, where female bodies were found floating in the Thames who'd been dismembered. And because they'd been dismembered instead of slashed, virtually everybody who studies Jack the Ripper says, no, that's a different guy. And I thought, how can that be possible? This kind of crime, how can it be possible that it's a different guy? This kind of crime is extraordinarily rare, exceedingly rare. And you're trying to tell me that two guys were dismembering and slicing women to bits, prostitutes, the victims were the same in the Ripper case and the, and the uh, Thames River uh, bodies. Same class of person. You're telling me that there were two insane slash murderers operating in the same square mile area at the same time and they're different guys? No. So a theory was put forward. There have been hundreds of theories. And I've read a bunch of them. No, yes, maybe you know. You can prove anything if you just put the points that work and take away the points that don't work. Prove anything. That's how you prove things like the Loch Ness monster and the Bermuda Triangle and all the rest. But with Jack the Ripper, I am 100% convinced. 100% convinced that they have actually discovered who this guy is. Um. And, and the reason I'm convinced about this is because instead of saying we've got this great mystery, who would be an interesting ripper? The guys that did this, uh, I think the book was called The Cutting Point. Uh, it, uh, Christ, uh, somebody Christensen was a uh, Swede, I think. He had done some 
he built a book based on somebody else's initial observation, but here's the short form. Let me make sure I get the name right, because I've had my brain filled with a whole bunch of other stuff today. I just want to double check it. Okay, hang on. Hang on. I gotta get this right. Where is he? Hang on, it's worth it. There he is. Yeah, I almost said Devere, it's not Devere. This is the theory, and I believe this theory 100%. I believe that Jack the Ripper was a guy named Charles uh, Lechmere. And if you want to see a photograph of Jack the Ripper, I can actually show you one. I am 100% convinced of this case. So here we go. Here's Charles Lechmere, uh, taken in his old age, probably 30 years after the Ripper murders. Here's why I think this is the guy. On the first of the canonical murders, was that was that Mary Kelly? Or, I, again, I had all this down verbatim just a month or two ago. The first, the first body that was discovered by the first body of uh, the canonical murders that was discovered was discovered by a guy named Charles Cross. He claimed to be walking down Buck Row, which is a very narrow alley in, in a dark, dark London. And he claimed that he's walking down this alley and in the, he sees what he thought was a, a a canvas tarpaulin or something and he walks over and realizes it's a it's a woman and then another guy and again I need to because I've forgotten these names I think his last name was Paul comes up behind him and 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 this guy this guy Charles Cross says come look I've, I've, I've come come here look I've, I found this dead body so they look at the body and then they go get a policeman and then Charles Cross disappears well Paul does an interview with the newspaper the next day and says yeah I was the second person your first guy there was a guy named um, Charles Cross so now Charles Cross realizes that he's been named in an interview. What he doesn't realize is that nobody really believes this guy, Paul, but he comes forward and testifies. So he says he found the body and that, and that this guy was right behind him and so on. Well, lots and lots of problems with that, with that story. Charles Cross disappears into the, uh, into the pages of history. He's lost for a century. But he did give his address. and. And after research, and finally in the early 2000s, somebody figured out that the person who lived at that address was a guy named uh, Charles Levere. And, uh, and he was Charles Cross. 
And uh, I need to read up on this. Lechmere, sorry, not Lechmere. Charles Lechmere. Here's here's the, the the main the main reason. Lechmere was the first guy to discover the first body, and the theory is that he was he was had just murdered this person. When Paul comes down Buck Row, he's standing there. Do I run or do I not? He basically doesn't panic because psychopaths don't panic. He tries to convince this guy that he found the dead body. They go off to tell the police, and he and then he disappears. But the guy mentioned him, so he comes back and says, "This is what I saw. And he's gone." All of the canonical murders take place in a very very small area, and every single one of them takes place between Lechmere's house and where Lechmere worked. And they are, in, in some cases, they're within four or five yards. It's not like within, you know, a half a mile. I mean, they are directly on the two routes that he would take to work. They all happened at the time of, of day that he was heading to work, which was, he had to be there at four o'clock in the morning. These murders all occurred around 3.30. Now, there were two of the canonical murders called the double event. Two women murdered the same night that happened at a different time, but that happened on a Saturday night, and that was the only night that Charles Lechmere was not working, and those two murders occurred on a straight line between where his mother lived and where he used to live and, and home. The, the discarded piece of, of bloody uh, rags from one of the victims was found directly on his thing. He was the first guy on the murder scene in the first case. All of this stuff gets more and more compelling, but the thing that absolutely seals the deal for me is what did Charles Lechmere do for a living? Well, he was a carman. He delivered goods. He had to be there at, at four o'clock in the morning and he delivered products to people around London so they would have them in the morning when their businesses opened. Do you know what products that Charles Lechmere delivered, the company that he works for? He delivered meat. He delivered meat at four o'clock in the morning in a gigantic cart and he would go around to all of these restaurants and places and he would deliver these giant slabs of beef and mutton and all the rest of it. Why is this important? Well, it's important because one of the big problems about Jack the Ripper is how do you, how do you cover the fact that, that he's covered in blood? And you always have this image of Jack the Ripper, the top cat and the, the top hat rather and the cane he, and the cloak. He's a gentleman because the, the cops at the time said, this guy has anatomical knowledge. He, he must be a doctor of some kind. And so instantly people say, oh, wow, that's exciting. He must be a doctor. He's probably a nobleman. Maybe he's the prince. Maybe it's one of the, one of the royal family that did it. All of, these, all of these potential topics, right? But it wasn't that he had medical knowledge. He had the knowledge that a butcher or a hunter has. He has the ability to separate joints and he knows how to do it, and he does it for a living. But much, much, much more importantly, much more importantly, this is a whole this is a whole case in a nutshell. The reason that nobody noticed this guy covered in blood was because he's covered in blood every single day, every single day. He comes home covered in blood because he's taking these big hunks of meat on his shoulder and marching them into into um into these locations. So, so this theory solves all of these problems. He is, he is at the scene of the first murder. His, his route back and forth from where he lived in Whitechapel to where he worked is within 10 yards of three of the murders in the canonical scene. The other two happened down where his mother lives and on his way up to uh, this, this place called the Church of Prostitutes because he got interrupted killing this first person on the double event. He goes and kills a second one. So there's, the, the circumstantial evidence is just overwhelming. And, and gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And then the question is, well, what does this have to do with the torso murders? Well, 
The torso murders were interesting because they occurred in the neighborhood where where Lechmere grew up, which was only a half a mile from where he ended up living during the river murders. And one of the torso murders, the last one, the body had been put in a sack and carried to an address and dumped there. And that address that was dumped there was the house, was where the house that Lechmere had grown up with, but had been basically bulldozed over to make a, a train overpass. That body was dumped where he once lived. And on 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 you go with all of this stuff. And to me, it's absolutely 100% convincing. 100% convincing. And read the cutting point and tell me if you, if you don't think so. It's not, I haven't found it on ebook. I had to order it. But this was, this was looking at, at Jack the Ripper as a forensic case and doing it in a modern way where it wasn't like, hmm, we suspect this person, we suspect that person. It's like, no, let, we don't have any suspects. By the reason that Lechmere got away with this, the whole reason that there's Jack the Ripper, was because of one astonishing coincidence. And he only needed one, but he got it. And the coincidence was that when Lechmere is killing that first victim in Buck's Row, Paul comes along. He can hear Paul. He knows this guy's coming. So he basically, this woman's on the ground. He covers up all of her wounds. Paul says, oh my God, well, what do we do? Let's prop her up. He says, no, no, don't move the body. He didn't move the body because the neck's been cut, but she was already strangled. So there's not a whole lot of blood there yet. It's starting to pool. So then Lechmere and Paul go down. So we got to go find a policeman, but we're also late for work because they're both Cartman. So on the way to, um, to work, they find a police officer and a police officer, then this is where he gets his, he gets his, his one coincidence that actually allowed him to, to get out of this one. He says to the first policeman he finds, there's a woman in Buck Row. She's either drunk or she's dead. We don't know. Uh, you're wanted down there. And that policeman goes down there. And while Lechmere and Paul were on the scene, there were no policemen there. But by the time this guy who Lechmere and Paul have run into gets to the murder scene, another policeman during his rounds has found the body. So this guy who talked to the suspect, Charles Cross. Charles Cross says you wanted down there. He may have been said even you wanted down there by a policeman. There was no policeman. But by the time he gets there, there was. And since there was a policeman, this guy assumes that that policeman sent him, so therefore he's innocent. And, and, and then off you go. Off you go. So uh, when we start looking at the comment section and they're talking about things like hydrogen fuel cells and nothing to do with what I'm talking about, then it's time to change the subject. But I find this stuff just absolutely fascinating. It's probably because I talked about it before. Anyway, um, I, I, the idea that, that the, the, for me, the big takeaway is we'd always had this romanticized idea of the, of, the, of the Ripper as being this tall aristocrat with the, the hat, the top hat, and, the, and, the, and the, le the gloves and the surgical kit with the scalpels. No, he's a butcher. He's not even a butcher. He's a guy who delivers meat. At 4 o'clock in the morning, every single day for 25 years, he is going up and down the streets of London covered in blood. Now, another little interesting tidbit of information is he used, the, he used the pseudonym Charles Cross when he came in to testify. He didn't want to come testify, but he had been mentioned by this other guy who had interviewed him by the newspaper the next day. Yeah, there was another guy there. 
So he steps forward, thinking I've got to tell a story or else they're going to come looking for me. What's your name, sir? My name is, is Charles Cross. Well, growing up, Lechmere came from a broken home, all the rest of this stuff that leads you to think he's a psychopath. His mother was domineering and, and was sleeping with all these guys and all the rest of this stuff. There was a period there where one of Lechmere's stepfathers was named Cross, and he was a policeman, the stepfather. So this guy used the name Charles Lechmere all the time. I think they said there's 123 recorded cases of him signing his name as Charles Lechmere. He signs it as Lechmere on the census. He signs it Lechmere family. It's Lechmere, 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 Lechmere. The only time he says cross is when he's called in to testify uh, in front of the police. But 15 years earlier, there's an accident, a genuine accident, where where two kids are playing in the street and one kid shoots out into the street and one of these delivery carts hits this kid and kills him. It's not the cart driver's fault. When the cart driver is called in to testify, he gives the name of Charles Cross. Almost certainly this was Lechmere. And so even 15 years ago, Lechmere uses the, uses the pseudonym of Charles Cross because it's plausible deniability. He could say, well, I, I guess I just put cross down because that's my stepfather's name. So he's not caught actually lying, but at the same time, he's not giving his real name. And he was, he was completely acquitted of this thing. It was, there was no way to avoid it. He didn't murder this kid. But it's interesting that a cartman who was working for the same company in the same area at the same place hits a kid and then gives this false name, which was the exact same false name that the witness, the only witness who first saw a body that wasn't a policeman was Charles Cross, the car man, who was Charles Lechmere. To me, I just love this stuff because it is airtight. And even two weeks ago, before I started having to film myself, I got to clear out some of the dead files up here because I'm running out of storage. But a month ago, I could have told you the name of all the canonical murders, where they happened. I, I remember the locations. I remember all of it. I really dove deep into this. One of the bodies that the Thames murderer disposed of, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that Jack the Ripper was playing with the police that once they didn't catch him and he committed a number of these murders, he actually just started getting really cocky and started playing with them. Um, he would, uh, not so much in the first case because he was interrupted in the first case. He's, he's just killed this woman. He's about to do what the Ripper does, which is disembowel her and, and all this other stuff. And he hears Paul coming down this alley, so he has to get away from that one. But his second victim and his third victim, his second victim, he... he disembowels his third victim he's interrupted he goes and kills the fourth one she's disemboweled in mitre square and then the fifth one is he gets inside her apartment and then he has five hours and what he does to her is simply unbelievable it's just unbelievable what what he did to that body just he just took it apart because he's not going to be disturbed now you see but he but a lot of people think he was playing with the police because of the Thames torso murders which People don't can't be Jack the Ripper. It's a completely different savage serial killer who's dismembering women's bodies. Okay. 
One of the torso murder bodies was found in the basement of New Scotland Yard, which was being built at the time. He put the body in police headquarters. How did he get the body in there? The only way that makes sense to me is if this is a guy who delivers meat to this location on a regular basis and he's just got a big sack and he ain't, how are you, Jim? These people knew him. The prostitutes who he murdered knew him. He had been working these streets for 20 years, right? 20 years. That means that every single night he goes to work, walks to work, 40-minute walk or a little less, something like that, Every single night, he's going down these same streets and he's meeting these prostitutes. I don't know if he's talking to them, whether he's engaging them or whatever, but they know him. And people say, why were there no screams? How come there were no... Because they knew him. He was a night guy on the streets. They'd seen him every day. And then, next thing you know, boom. Covered with blood. Well, that's what, that's what you know about Charles Lechmere. When you see Lechmere... Chances are going to be pretty good he's covered in blood because Lechmere delivers raw sides of meat. And that's how he can section bodies. Anyway, so one of these bodies shows up in New Scotland Yard. Another one of the Thames torso murder bodies shows up at his former address, which was bulldozed to make a railway overpass. Uh, another one of the bodies is dumped into the house that belonged to Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, who assembled a monster out of pieces of people. These guys, Eric points out, that's what the Zodiac Killer did. These guys, it's part of their psycho psychopath psychopathy. Their narcissism becomes so great that once they get away with it, and, he, and, and it makes it look easy, then I guess they do it mostly because the thrill is gone if it gets to be this easy. He likes the thrill, he needs it. Now, one of the things that people say about this is that it's impossible because after this mass, this murder of, was it Mary Kelly? I want to say it was Mary Kelly who was the, the, the woman who he got into this room with alone and dismembered for five hours. That was so much more savage than either of the other ones that the, that the canonical murder stopped after that. And people wonder, well, why, he, why didn't he keep killing? Maybe he was killed or he went someplace else or whatever. And they would say it's impossible for a mass murderer to just stop. Not true. Many mass murderers have just plain stopped killing. This guy they caught recently in California, I forget the name, he's a three-letter killer. He killed 12 people 20 years ago, and then he stopped. And the only reason they found him was because somebody had done one of these 23andMe DNA tests, and that DNA came back to match some DNA they found on one of the murder sites 15, 20 years ago. And then they go knock on his door, hey, there's, the, there's your killer, the BTK killer. Thanks, Dave. He killed a bunch of people, then he stopped. And that's what Lechmere did. Lechmere actually ended up getting a little bit of money, fairly well-to-do guy when he died. And when he finally died, uh, he, what did I do? I believe that. When he finally died, he um, had a photograph of himself taken as an old man, 25, 30 years after the last murders, and I know this kind of thing is not evidence, but I'll tell you something. Looking at this picture, when I saw this picture of, of what I'm convinced is Jack the Ripper, I was not shocked. There's something about this guy that is, um, I think, disturbing. And as a matter of fact, let me see if I've got it here. 
there is an app that I picked up just for giggles. Uh, and um, and what this app does is uh, it cleans up faces. It uses AI to clean up faces. So I've taken pictures of my family and cleaned those up. And I did that with Lechmere. And uh, if I don't have it here, I've got here it is. So I ran um, I ran Lechmere's face through this just a simple app you can buy for the iPhone, and uh, and this is what he looks like after um, AI has been on him. That's that's over processed. I got another one. Hang on. So obviously the lower lip and the beard is the AI trying to figure it out, but he, but they've got the eyes, and um, I don't know, I I I don't I don't particularly like the way that guy looks, but that doesn't prove anything. This guy's got a dead eye look to me, you know. Anyway, I love this kind of stuff. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love. It. Somebody said sunken eyes have that effect. I have sunken eyes. called um uh, what's it called face yeah like Muhammad Atta. exactly he does he has that dead-eyed look of, that Muhammad Atta had and that, that particular app is really cool it, not only can you restore old pictures and, and focus them you can colorize them and you can even animate them and it's called um pixel up it's really cool all right moving on goodbye Jack you miserable murdering swine um uh, let's see what we got here. Back to face, Facebook. Charles Tomes, uh, CSR actual, uh, CSR six actual. Uh, how many blue blaze regulars does it take to stop seventy percent of Russia's top of the line land forces? Wow, we get a common sense resistance um, reference. We get a uh, we get a Buckaroo Banzai reference. All the rest of the stuff. How many does it take? Uh, the Blue Blazer regulars were Buckaroo Banzai's uh, street crew, basically. Uh, and uh, I would say, I don't know the number, but in order to, um, to do what you say, to stop uh, Russia's top-of-the-line land forces, I would say that you've got, um, you've got just as many Blue Blazer regulars as you have uh, St. Javelins in the inventory. That's all you need. Uh, moving on. Hey, look at this. Uh, peace and long life, Bill. Uh, live long and prosper image of Eric Blake. Um, here's a question about your thoughts on the Wheel of History. In your new classic, Guiding the Wheel, thank you, uh, you talked about how the wheel has sped through the bad times in two or three years in New York City. Leaving aside Mayor Adams' disappointments, exactly what has prolonged the bad times so that they've lasted so much longer in California? What's the difference here and why? If, I guess what that question is saying is why was New York able to get at least a former police officer? He's certainly been somewhat disappointing, but nevertheless, you've got Rudy Giuliani. You've got everybody before Giuliani in New York is, is the murder capital of the world, and it's just a living pit, and you can't go into the subways, and you can't walk at the streets at nights, just, just a, a pit. Giuliani comes along. They finally think get bad enough that they're willing to, to do the, the unthinkable and elect a Republican prosecutor, cleans up the city, and for 10 or 15 years, New York is safe enough so that you could walk 
easily, comfortably walk with your children through Times Square at 3 in the morning without the slightest worry about anything. And I've had both those experiences. I was there when it was frightening, and I was there when it wasn't. And then de Blasio, and then, of course, de Blasio is, is, a, is a far leftist, and he's letting all these uh, criminals out of jail, and now the murder rate in, in New York doubles, practically triples, and all the crimes back and so on, so they finally elect a more of a law and order guy. Why didn't that happen in California? Well, it didn't happen in California because in California, there's still enough physical space to keep you away from the worst of the crime. In New York, there was no getting away from it. When New York City's crime rate doubles, you don't get to say that, well, that's a you know, bad neck of the woods. Pretty densely packed there in New York City. Here in California, you have the crime rate triple in, in Compton. It's not gonna affect you in Brentwood or Beverly Hills until it does. Um, one of the uh, reasons that, that the LA district attorney is finally um, facing recall is not because of all the murders of regular people and not, certainly not because of all of the murders of black people that have increased since this soft on crime thing happened. No, it's because an extremely prominent, extremely wealthy socialite donor was murdered in her house that now all of a sudden we're gonna get um, some looking into restoring law, law and order into this town. This is what democratic politics is all about. They don't care how many black people are killed. They don't care how many regular people are killed. They don't care how many homeless people there are. They don't care if the city turns into Mogadishu, and it does. They don't care because it doesn't affect them. And then when it does affect them, when one of theirs gets murdered, now all of a sudden all the alarm bells go off and we got to do something. And I am shocked and, dis and, and, and I am really quite alarmed and upset that I am starting to sound an awful lot like the leftists on some of these things. But... This is a result of the things that I believe in falling apart. This is what happens when you have left-wing politics, and now the government and businesses are indistinguishable. It's, it's the elites versus the people. And if you're ready to make that change, mental change, it's no longer left and right and Republicans and Democrats. Now it's the people versus these elitists. Now you've got, now you've got grounds to, um, to actually form an alliance against these, these uh bastards these swine i hope that answer did seem like it's relatively straightforward I mean, they're here in california you can segregate yourself away from the crime and in new york it's much tougher to do that just because it's much much smaller much closer together um okay uh, ian little hey ian. bill is there any way to deny that we are deep into late stage civilization in america and the west and is it too late to turn it around when there are so few of us that have the will to do it. Uh, I don't think there's any question that we're in uh, late, stage, late stages of civilization. Anybody who, who knows anything about history and anybody who's paying attention can see that things are in, in terrible decline. They're practically in free fall. The good news is, I can think of at least two pieces of good news. This is the cycle of history. This is how people are built. Let's just say it again, because it needs to be said. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make bad times. Bad times make strong men. And around and around and around and around and around the wheel goes. And we are now moving from the weak men into bad times uh, cycle pretty rapidly. So what do you do about that? Well, there's nothing you can do about the biology of it. it when something happens that often, then you realize that this is built into the human condition. 
what's built into the human condition is the unwillingness to look at unpleasant things. This is what I mentioned a little while ago. The Titanic isn't going to sink. Is it unsinkable? Pretty much. What would you have to do to sink it? Well, you'd have to run right into an iceberg, and not just straight on. You'd have to run into it at the perfect angle where it just takes out the whole side of the ship. So the chance of that happening is next to zero. But it's not zero, right? It could happen. Yeah, it could happen, but it probably won't happen. And in fact, it seems very unlikely. Well, it did. It did happen. And so that aspect of, of wanting wishful thinking, wanting to see the good, is built into us. So how do we break out of this wheel? Well, there's two things I see that are unique to this cycle. And what I mean by that is, when I say they're unique to the cycle, what I'm really trying to say is they're unique to the cycle. Meaning that in all the number of times this wheel's gone around, these two conditions have never existed before. One of them is, we are now able to talk to each other as citizens without having to go through the priesthood. Because of the internet, which has done an incalculable amount of damage in terms of in terms of getting people to believe the same mass hysteria delusion, mass formation delusion. Internet has made that much easier. But the point is, is that that was always able to happen. You could do that with newspapers. You could do it with TV. They did it in Nazi Germany with posters and radio and all the rest of it. You can get the, the, the large majority of people to believe any lie you want to if you tell them it often enough and convince them that if they don't agree with you, then they're bad people. So the ability for those of us who are not susceptible to these stories to talk to each other directly like we're doing now, that has never happened before. Is that going to make a difference? I don't know. There's another thing that has never happened before, and I got a lot more confidence in this one. There has never been a cycle of history where the population was armed. That one is the one that I've got most of my hope on. Uh, I'm working on a, a firewall on the technocracy, on this entire idea that these people are trying to do this. Uh, technocracy, you think, is a new term. It requires big tech. Actually, it was first mentioned in 1919, and it was a movement in 1936. The idea that the ideal way to run a society is to let the smart people make all the decisions. We'll have a scientific society. We will scientifically distribute wealth and goods, and we will scientifically determine uh, politics, and we don't need the people making decisions anymore because they're not as smart as we are, so on, so on, so on. Now, as it turns out, uh, groups of people are smarter than, than the best of the experts, and that's the whole weighing the ox thing. I'm going to bring that back. But smart people think that they can do things better than other people, and they're wrong, and they've always been wrong. So how do we break out of this cycle? Well, my evolving mega theory is that the last 250 years have been a complete aberration. That for 250 years, in parts of the world and in parts of the world that gradually expanded and after World War II and the fall of communism exploded, that for the first time in history, individual humans were able to own their own property, which meant they were able to work harder than they would have to otherwise because they got to keep the rewards of their hard work. If I am working for the king, or he's taken half of my crops or whatever, I'm going to do what I need to survive, but I'm sure as hell not going to work my butt off just so I can give him most of everything. But if I own my own stuff, then I'm going to get up earlier and stay up later. That's human nature too. That's why capitalism produces so much wealth, because you work harder because you get to keep the reward. You produce excess value, excess labor. 
that meant that for the first time in history, regular people, what it meant, really what it meant was for the first time in history, there would be a middle class. There were, there were people who were not part of the ruling class. They were not part of the families or part of the nobility or whatever. They were regular people who had amassed enough wealth to be able to live their lives in relative comfort and do what they wanted to do and vote the way they wanted to vote. And, and that's true all the way down the economic spectrum here in America. And up until about the 60s, there was a 200-year period, 1776, let's say, to 1976, where individuals were allowed to have their own property and things just were fantastic. You look at the total wealth in the world and it just, just it's exponential, off we go. Well, look at it from the other perspective. If you're one of those people that has a genetic desire to tell other people what to do. If you're one of these people who, who is psychopath, and, and by the way, I forget what the number is, but it's something like seven, eight, nine, ten percent of the population, maybe it's as low as three or four percent, but it's some significant number, is in fact psychopathic, clinically psychopathic. You sit in a room with, with uh, 100 people, there are five or six genuine, actual psychopaths in that room who are good at covering up the fact that they don't feel anything. That's why psychopaths are often so successful and why they do so well in politics. But if you're one of these people that wants to rule the world, you can look at the, that 200-year period as an aberration. It's like, wait a minute, these people are running their own lives? We can't have that. we got to stop them. we gotta, we got to do what we do, which is we got to tell them what to do and what to think and how to buy and how to live, and we'll own everything, and, and they can work and provide us with... Um, with all of our luxuries. That's in the human genome, and it's been there forever. And for 200 years, these people were kind of out of a job. And then they wormed their way into these institutions that we built to protect ourselves from them. And because we're minding our own business, they're undermining all of these things in the Commerce Clause and all of this, all of this stuff, all the protections of the, of the Constitution undermined, and we know what's going on, but we don't want to do anything about it because it's not really a fact. We just say, you know what, I'm just going to walk away. Well, we can walk away from them, but they don't walk away from us. So now we find ourselves with an economy that has absolutely no bearing to reality whatsoever, and everybody knows it. The people that, that have $30 trillion worth of derivatives out there know it, and the people who have $100 in a savings account know it. It's one giant hollow lie because these people want their control back. It's anathema to them that, that people could be living lives of prosperity and comfort and happiness that are not controlled by them. And I keep coming back to this. I kept asking myself, why is it that Gavin Newsom would allow the most beautiful city in America and arguably the world, San Francisco, why would Gavin Newsom allow that city to degenerate to the point where you have to have a, an Apple app to tell you where to avoid the biggest concentration of human feces and needles. Why would he do that? And I realized the answer is because he is a born aristocrat. He's a genetic aristocrat. And the reason he wants human filth on the streets of San Francisco is because the citizens have to walk in that filth, but he doesn't. In other words, if everybody is rising, he's going to lower other people's standard of living so that he can be above people, which is where he needs to be. And he's just one of many. Nancy Pelosi's built out of the same stuff. All of them. They're all built up. The Biden family is a criminal family. The Clinton family is a criminal enterprise. All of it. They're just mass 
mass criminals, and you can make a pretty compelling case that some of them are mass murderers too. Now, I personally think that everybody who gets into politics has this to some degree or another, so why would I support somebody like Donald Trump? Donald Trump is a megalomaniac. He's a narcissist. There's no question about it. But the thing that made Donald Trump so interesting and so, and so valuable was that he decided that he was going to get his wealth and power in business and not in government. He came into politics. Donald Trump is the only president that I've ever seen in my lifetime that, be, that for that that for becoming president of the United States was a cut in pay and a significant cut in personal power and lifestyle. The kind of place that Trump lived before he lived in the White House was far better than the White House. He took a step down to do it, and I think he did it out of patriotism, and he also did it out of, out of narcissism, and you have to be a certain degree of narcissist to be there. Ronald Reagan ran for president of the United States because he saw what was happening to the country, and he loved this country. But you've still got a guy who's a governor and who's a movie star. I mean, these are, these are strivers, right? So, so what do we do about this? Well, for the first time ever, they can't just have their police forces round us up. They could have called the army out on the Canadian truckers. But that would look bad on TV, and it would set a pretty bad example Canada's not armed the way we are because we have a Second Amendment and they don't. Why do you think that Australians are going along with this idea of being sent to concentration camps in uh, northern Australia because they're not vaccinated? Well, because 20 years ago, politicians convinced them to turn in their guns. You don't need them anymore. They're just murder tools. And, and if you own a gun, you're a barbarian and a savage, and you're certainly not smart, and you're certainly not good. So... Let's turn them all in. Australians, good people, want to be good people, like to be thought of as good people. They are good people. So after enough people tell you that only bad people own guns, the Australians vote to turn their guns in. So now I don't have guns anymore. And now when somebody wants to put them in a van and ship them someplace, there's not a damn thing they can do about it. And this is why the Ukraine is throwing such a monkey wrench into American politics. Because all of these American liberals who have said for their entire lives, what do you need an assault rifle for? You want you own an AR-15? As a matter of fact, I did. Before the boating accident, I did, yes. What do you need that for? I don't know. Maybe somebody's going to come down my street, try to take over my country. <laughs> nah, it's ridiculous. Not ridiculous anymore. Right? Not ridiculous anymore. Now they can see why people own guns in this country. Because that option is off the table for these people. The violence option, the rounding us up option, the, the sending in the, the Cossacks or sending in the Gestapo or sending in the Stasi or sending in the KGB or sending in, sending in the Kingsguard, that option's off the table for them now because of the Second Amendment. And because we bought our weapons before they could, before they could pervert the Second Amendment the way they perverted the First Amendment. So that's really, really good news. Really, really, really good news. It means that their natural pathway to dominance, which is through convincing, is for the elites remain in power because they have money. They don't go and, and round people up and they don't go and murder people. They pay people to go and murder people. 
Now, that murdering part is off the table here in America because if there's a systematic attempt to murder the American people, we're going to do some murdering back. And they know it. We know it. So that option's off the table. So how do they get their power back? Well, the short form is, since they can't take our guns, what they can do is they can take our kids and they can teach our kids to such a degree that when our children grow up, our children will turn our guns into the government in order to get the cookie. They don't have to take our guns, they just have to wait. They just have to convince our children that, this whole, that, that, that their parents are dinosaurs or racists or white supremacists or whatever. And then our kids or their grandkids will turn their guns in voluntarily. That's how they do it. So what do we do about this? Well, um, uh, this, is the, this is the question. Klaus Schwab in the, in the World Economic Forum, when the COVID-19 thing happened, he said we have a limited window of opportunity. There's no question that so much of what we saw during the last two years is not only unscientific, it's anti-scientific. Okay? If this were actually about public health, then the public health officials wouldn't be saying everybody has to wear a mask and stay indoors unless you're going to go to a Black Lives Matter protest, in which case you can go out without a mask. That one thing alone is prime evidence that this is not about medicine. It's not about prevention. And all of the rest of it, all of the rest of it, it is a dress rehearsal. And it's not just a dress rehearsal. It's also an experiment. It's gathering data. And the data that these people are gathering is... How willing will people be to voluntarily give up their freedoms? How many people will do it and what will it take? And as the social pressure towards buying a Victrola continues to increase and increase and increase, more and more people took it. Now we're at the point where the people who, who are rebelling against this, this, is, this, is, this has been compressed as far as it's going to be compressed. There is no amount of information, there's no amount of propaganda, there's no amount of, of peer pressure that will make people who have not taken the vaccine so far take the vaccine. So, that's a problem. He said it was a limited window. They certainly didn't pull it off, but they also have done enough to scare the living daylights out of me. I live in California for a number of reasons. I love I love it here and just love the weather. That's the main reason I'm here. Everybody wants to know why I don't go to a free country. Because of the weather. But another reason, a genuine reason is, I kind of need to be where this stuff is coming from. That's the volcanologist analogy. We have had the indoor mask mandate lifted now for, I can't remember if it's a week ago or two weeks ago. I think it's two weeks, but certainly at least one. And all during this week in this very office building, I would say that 80 to 90% of the people that I see are still wearing masks, even though they are no longer required to do so. Small little bit of joy in this is they used to be the Karens giving me the eagle eye. Now I'm the Karen giving them the eagle eye, evil eye. Okay, so without using coercive force, without putting a gun to people's heads, without taking people away in the middle of the night and having family members disappear, without that, they have still managed to convince a very large section 
of the American populace to do what they tell them to do. Okay. And this is data. And, and now they have an idea of how we'll go along. One of the things that, that I talked about on the Virtue Signal with Zoe, and, and it's really important, is, is the elevation of science. That actual word. Science is so astonishingly effective when it's allowed to be science that it has tremendous cred. Science has eliminated disease. Vaccinations have eliminated disease. Real vaccinations have eliminated contagious diseases. Science has increased. I don't have to tell you what science has done. You know what science does. Science is an extraordinarily powerful force, but what we've seen in the last 50 years and more is that science is no longer being considered as a scientific tool. Science is now used as a, is used precisely as, as a religion. Do you believe, are, are you a Christian? No, I believe in science. I occasionally do a radio show with, um, with um, Father McTeague. I do a Catholic radio show calling. And, uh, and he had a great joke about that. He says, I don't, believe in, I don't believe in Christianity. I believe in science. And he says, does that mean you celebrate mass? I, thought, or, I believe in physics. Does that mean you celebrate mass? I thought that was very clever. But people will say, I believe in science. So science says that COVID is a, is a deadly, deadly disease. And science says that you need to be vaccinated. And science says that the world is about to be destroyed because it's overheating. And science says that we're going to burn or we're going to drown. And science says this and science says that. And so what they are doing is they are, they are intentionally elevating science to the status of religious authority. It's practically papal authority. If Fauci decrees something, then that's the same as the Pope decreeing something. If you worship science as a religion and Fauci is science, then if you, if you don't agree with Fauci, then you're wrong. And people who do disagree with Fauci are heretics and they must be destroyed. So when you get into this worship of science as, as a philosophy, what they're doing is they're grooming us to obey anything that they claim has a scientific basis. And this is what we're seeing right now. Uh, I don't know. Uh, those, those people who are, who, are, who are not wearing masks, no, I wear a mask because I follow the science. That's a religious statement. And it's got religious conviction. And the hatred towards people who are against the vaccination or against the mass is the hatred that the true believers have against the heretics. They are confusing me. They're causing me cognitive dissonance. I don't want to have to deal with the fact that I have to think about these things. So they got to go. So what do we do about that? If I had to describe the problems with this country and with the with the state of society all around the world right now is it's very 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 simple everything is way 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 too big way too big because of the generation of wealth and power 
And as more and more of it goes from the states to the federal level, even the states, now California's GDP is tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, even despite the fact that it's bleeding out, right? There's so much money at stake. There's so much prosperity, especially when you're printing money and you can afford to have things that you probably couldn't afford. Otherwise, there's so much prosperity that, that, that Klaus Schwab is, is telling you what's going to happen. You won't own anything and you'll be happy. We'll give you all the things you want. You just won't own them. And you need to ask yourself, okay, so what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? If, if I get my Netflix and I get my housing and I get my car, I lease a car, I, I, I pay rent on a house, uh, and I've got all of the internet access I want. I've got the phone, and I'm leasing all of this stuff. I don't own any of it. I used to be able to download a song and keep it as mine. Now I just, now I can't do that anymore. Now I subscribe to the service. I used to go out and buy a DVD of this movie. It's my property. I paid you money for it. I own this individual copy of Lord of the Rings. Now, no, now it's a streaming service. You just pay your monthly fee, and you get all the stuff. Great. It's so convenient. Wow, wonderful. Great. Cloud, all this stuff. You don't own anything. What's the problem with that? If your life doesn't change, what's the problem with that? There is no problem with it, except that if you don't own it, somebody else can turn it off. That's the problem. And all you have to do is look at Canada, right? If it turns out, well, not if, we just saw it with our own eyes. People who do things that the government doesn't approve of have their entire net worth vaporized, gone. So if the whole world gets to this point because of an economic collapse and they ride in here and say, so in order for us to not eat rats, we bright financial people have figured out a way to do this. We're just going to reset all the debt in the world. Fantastic. Now, of course, that means that there's a lot of money out of the system, so we're going to pay you enough money to, you know, on a, on a monthly basis for you to, to live and you get to keep your Netflix you know, subscription, all the rest of it, the stuff that you, the money that you made and that you stored in the system, that's gone. Don't ask where it's gone because we took it. We took it and we bought everything up with it, but all the debts erased now. What do you do about this? Well, first of all, you got to get small. I, I was talking earlier about a, a small town bank with no branches where my money goes into that bank and it stays there. If it's going to be lent out to buy a house or build a house, then it's going to come out of their vault. They're going to be out that amount of money. And if I don't pay them back with interest, then they're going to have to foreclose on me and find somebody else who can. Fundamental economics that actually works, that's sustainable. You need to have a money supply that is, that is, is the term non-frangible? Non is that what I want to say? It's something solid that cannot be changed or created. You need you need it to be based. Look, your economy can be based on baseball trading cards if you want to, doesn't matter, but it's got to be something that you cannot just crank out and manufacture. I mean, authentic baseball trading cards, right? Unfungible. Yes, that's the word. So there are so many people who bought into this now that the only answer I look, I to answer your question directly, uh, Ian, there's no way to prevent this. I, I thought there was, but that's because I didn't know enough. There's no way to prevent it because it's unpreventable. It's never been prevented before. But, 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 on this particular cycle, for the first time ever, there are mitigating circumstances that allows us to survive this with a 
relatively small amount of inconvenience. If we start planning to, to get ourselves into small communities now, then all of the cities can collapse. And if we are living in small communities, we're okay. If you take a small town, Indianapolis, if you put Indianapolis on, on, on the moon under a dome, right, there's enough different occupations in, and enough talent in the city of Indianapolis for them to be able to survive. There's enough farmers, there's enough you know, car mechanics, there's enough, there's enough everything, right? And if Indianapolis, as an example, has an internal economic system that is based on reality, then Indianapolis will be fine. doesn't matter what happens to the rest of the country. So you've got to get... You've got to get back to basics, but you can't get back to basics on something this big because the structure of the big thing is, is worthless. You've got you to make little islands of stability. That's probably the best way to think of it. When we took the war to Japan, we didn't have to conquer the Pacific Ocean. All we had to do was find some airstrips. And we didn't have to take every single island either. We would island hop. We'd get an airstrip here. Okay, do we need to capture all these islands? No. We're just going to go right past them. We're going to have air cover. The Japanese will not be able to supply them. They're just going to die of starvation. We don't have to kill guys to go and take that ground. We've just made them irrelevant. That's the only thing I see as a future. Because the good news is, not only are we armed and not only can we talk to each other, but there's 150 million of us. That's France and Germany combined. There are large numbers of people, probably the majority, but certainly enormous, in two or three entire European countries worth of people right here who get all of this who get it all. They get the economics, they get the work ethic, they get the, the crime and punishment thing, they get the self, they get it all. That 150 million people is the only thing standing in the way of these Schwab guys. And unfortunately for them, their efforts to get us to surrender have not worked and are not likely to work and we haven't turned in our guns, so they can't send other people after us to, to make us uh, vanish. They still can liquidate our, our bank accounts, though, and that's something we should be looking at real fast. Um, but in any event, it's, uh, it's the only solution. I think, I hate to say it, because I, I, I love America, but more and more every day, that means I love the idea of America. It certainly doesn't mean I love what America's become in California. Most of the country's actually really pretty healthy. So I think we should break up the federal government, break up the union. I don't think we should have 50 states. I think we should have probably 400. Something that seems about right. I think there should be 400 individual governments in the area occupied by the United States. And I think we should all be doing business with our neighbors, but honestly, given the amount of damage and given the amount of brainwashing, if you want to live in a city where you wear masks for the rest of your lives, I cannot convince you not to, so you can go live over there and we'll live over here. And over time, 
we will be enforcing the law. We will be treating people equally. We will be allowing people to keep the, 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 the results of their hard work. We will be running an economic system that is accountable and in balance. We'll be doing all of these things and inventing stuff and getting rich. And you will be living with your philosophy where your world gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse every single day. And distance, the, the, the distinction, the contrast between these two will become greater and greater and greater. And then we have to be able to say, yes, you can move here, but because of what you've done where you came from, you don't get to vote because you'll screw it up. Your kids can vote if they haven't been born yet. We'll think about that. Look, this last thing I'll say, because it's time for me to go, I got, uh, I'll deal with Dave Olson's question because the only one left. Um, the only way to solve this is to be able to, I, I can't put it any more plainly than this. The only way to solve this is to be able to have a legal border that allows you to prevent certain people from coming into your territory. And for those of you watching at Media Matters, when I say certain people, I don't mean black people. I mean you people. I mean you white liberal people. Those are the ones who we got to be careful of. Those are the ones we got to be able to say, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Your fantasy beliefs have ruined all the rest of that stuff. You're not going to ruin this. Here's another 399 states you can go live in, but not in this one. And I don't know what else to do about it. I think that's what's going to happen whether we like it or not. It's too big. When you have a government that has a budget that is so large that $20,000 million, $20 billion can disappear in a rounding error, where did it go? We don't know. We lost it. You lost $20 billion? Yep. Can't find it. Okay, well, you lost twenty billion because you're spending four, three or four thousand billion a year, right? Yeah, so twenty is just gone. Okay, well, that means that every dollar I've ever paid in tax, and every dollar that everybody I know who pays in taxes, and all of their children, and their children's children, and all the people they know, those are the people that put that twenty billion dollars into the system that you lost. So you have stolen that from us. You've stolen our lives. You've stolen all the things we could have done with that tax money. You've stolen all the vacations we didn't take and all of the swimming pools and all the boats we didn't buy, all of it. You've stolen that money. And now you can't account for it. It didn't buy anything. We're not unreasonable. We understand if you're going to have to have a government and have roads, you're going to have to pay something to have these things done for the common good. But when you tell us that there's $20 billion vaporized, what you're telling me is every single dime I've made and paid in taxes and continue to pay is gone. And I didn't get anything for it. And in California, I damn sure didn't get anything for it. First thing my wife said to me when she first came here, when we were driving up and down the 405 freeway, she was saying, these roads are, are, are really bad. And I said, really? I hadn't really thought about it. It's America. This is Los Angeles. Said, yeah. Roads in Istanbul and Cairo are much better than this. Istanbul and Cairo? Yeah, absolutely. Much better than the roads here in California. It's true. So probably if you want to compare California, infrastructure-wise, you probably, instead of going to Cairo or Istanbul or something like that, you probably should go straight to Mogadishu and, and, and compare uh, apples with apples. All right, last question, and uh, it's from Dave Olson, and then 
and get mom out of here. Okay, hi Bill. Can't wait to see your appearance on American Built. I hope you finally debunked the old myth about the VIB having its own weather system. Dave, I did not debunk that myth. I actually contributed to it. I said it had its own weather system. That's all I've ever heard about the VAB. I've never heard that that was not true. Um, if it turns out that, because uh, I, you know, it's one of those things that's actually kind of easy to be. It's an enormous building, and it's much cooler on the inside than it is on the outside. The humidity in Florida is enormous. The idea that it would rain inside the VAB is, when I say rain, enough condensation, so it feels a bit like rain. I don't find that hard to believe, but if you say it's fake, send me a link or something, and I'll call the producers and say, can you take that part out? He goes on to say, and speaking of space, as of my as of my posting of this question, SpaceX is going to launch a Starlink flight tonight at 11.24 Eastern Time or 8.24 in Bill Time. It's gone. The SpaceX hosts are uniformly awful, proving your adage about watching a bunch of engineers performing Hamlet. Will you do a live commentary, and would you, Scott and Steve, consider doing a play-by-play -play of future launches? Seriously, your almost live coverage of the Falcon Heavy launch was a hoot. If they would hire you to do launch commentary, they wouldn't have half a million views per launch. They'd be in the millions per launch. The next two crewed flights are scheduled for April 3rd and the 19th. That is a grand, 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 grand idea. I would love to do that. Um, they bumped it to 9.42 Pacific time, which is... Oh, we still got an hour. Um, I won't be doing this one live, but but yes. In fact, <laughs> I am. I suddenly, in the moment, just realized I'm proud to say that I don't have any interest in watching this. I'm bored. When you're bored with with routine spaceflight, that means you're making real, actual progress. When SpaceX has launched so many rockets, it's like, look, an airplane. I don't feel that anymore because there's a lot of airplanes out there now and they're landing all the time. I don't stop the car when I see a jet fly over. That's good. Um, I am, I, I'm not going to, I can't stay for another hour or less than an hour or whatever. I just can't. I'm, I'm cooked and I'm done. I do like the idea of doing one live and the stakes are certainly higher, not in terms of, gee, the catastrophe, but just in terms of the connection when there's a human crew. But, you know, you're launching a bunch of crackers up there, these little Starlink things. Uh, it's, um, it's amazing. We're in trouble because these guys have found a way, and I'm, I'm not even saying they did this on purpose. But, as I've said before, the big shocking reveal at the end of 1984 is that there is a camera inside the television that you're being watched in your own apartment that you've been watched this whole time. And when that first came out, people thought the horror of it. I can remember being horrified about that. A camera in my house recording everything I do and say? You mean something like this? How many of these do we have at my house? At least four. At least four microphones and cameras 
at least, and some people have a lot more than that. Um, and, and I have never, and I will never, this is just me, I'm not trying to say anybody who does this is a bad person, but it gives me the creeps, it makes my stomach turn when I see an ad where somebody says, Alexa, turn on the TV, or Alexa, dim the light, somebody was mentioning this in the comment section. Um, Steve Green is a, is, a, is a huge tech guy. Steve will be in the middle of a conversation and then he'll say, uh, Siri, uh, Siri, uh, uh, turn, the, turn the lights down. And I'm thinking to myself, in order for Siri to understand that, that means Siri has to be listening to everything you say. You're not, you don't have to, you know, clap on and clap off. It's like, it's, it has to be listening to everything you say all the time or else it doesn't recognize Siri, turn the TV on. The idea that some machine that's connected to the internet is listening to everything I say is, is, is terrifying. And this is a fig leaf and, and this is a, a mental um, uh, cover because look, this thing is off. I think, right? I mean, it's not recording sound, I think. I know for a certain fact from people in the intelligence community that it is possible to activate this phone and the camera. The microphone and the camera can be turned on without anything showing up. It can be done anytime they want to. Um, and, and so the idea of me being horrified that Siri is listening to every sentence I say is essentially just a, a fig leaf for the fact that they're listening to everything I already said. It, isn't it awful how this stuff got corrupted? I mean, remember when, when phones were things that, that would allow you to steer using GPS and take a picture, you always had ability to take a picture of your family. Remember when Facebook was about connecting with your family? Remember when you could post a video on YouTube and have it seen by whoever wanted to see it and if you hit the subscribe button, you would be notified? Remember those days when these things were actually, at the time, social goods before people realized the power of them and, and corrupted them? I don't believe that these things were intended, that they were designed from the ground up. I don't think YouTube was designed to be a, a means of social control. I just think it became incredibly popular. And then somebody said, well, look at this. Now let's control what people see. Google, Google's the worst by far. All you need to know about Google is this. Something, I don't forget the exact number, but it's something like 96% of all the people that do a Google search never go to page, page two. In other words, every time you do a Google search, 96% of the people that do a Google search find their answer on the first page. And not too long ago, they started adding that little box. What's an M4 Sherman tank? Google. Here's your answer in a box. You don't have to go any further, Bill. You don't have to go and look for other sources. We'll tell you right now what, what, what the uh, M4 tank is and, and the reason it works is because most of that information is perfectly accurate. But they don't even have to shut down the information sources and they don't even have to bury them. They just have to make them two clicks deep. That's human nature and they got us absolutely figured out. So, 
I don't think these people will win. I think, I think that what I'm seeing in Ukraine, aside from the technological business about a whole new way to fight war and, and, and so on, what I'm seeing with the world reaction to Ukraine is that it is possible that we have reached a level of, of social advancement where where the cost of doing war outweighs the advantages. That started to happen. Look, once you start having factories in China, and once China starts owning buildings in America, you know, in a nuclear war with China, we'll be nuking our own factories over there. They'll be nuking their own properties over here, you know. So this naked aggression, I think this is the, the look, I, uh, I've said it before, I think this Ukraine situation is the last gasp of communism. Vladimir Putin is half gangster and half KGB man. I don't think Putin will be around in a month. I'd be surprised if he's around in two weeks. He may last a little longer. He may be there for 20 years, but my money is on the fact that he's not going to be around much longer because he runs a kleptocracy, and as long as the money is flowing, the gangsters who run the country are happy, and when the money gets cut off, they're not happy, and when the money that they've already made gets taken away, they're very unhappy. Nobody's supporting Putin. He's embarrassed his generals. He's, he's, he's humiliated his intelligence agencies. There's nobody there. He's not going to be around a lot longer. Because right now they're getting nothing but stick. They're getting a lot more stick than I ever thought they would get. And that's the honest truth. I, I thought, oh, here's some more sanctions. I didn't anticipate this, cutting this country, just slicing it off from the rest of the earth. So all Russia has to do to get the money going again is to get rid of Vlad, who's not loved by anybody, feared by some people, many people, but not. there's no love for him. Russian, there are a lot of Russians who support Putin, a lot of Russians who buy this whole thing. Putin said that um, just a couple days ago that he went into Ukraine because the West, because the West is, is determined to destroy Russia. That's our goal. We're, we're, Russia has to fight or die. And, and a significant number of people believe that. But there's the internet. But there's the internet. Uh, Helios says, bet you're wrong. Well, this may be the only time I'm aware of when I actually hope I'm right. Usually I hope I'm wrong, but this one I hope I'm right. Um, so you can lie to the people. You can tell them all of this stuff. U.S. estimate that I saw the other day, U.S. intelligence estimate. So this isn't a Ukrainian estimate, and it's not the Russian estimate. The last estimate I saw yesterday was that the Russians have lost at least 7,000 killed in two weeks. And that's more killed than the United States lost in Iraq and Afghanistan combined over 20 years. All of the losses we took in Afghanistan and Iraq for the 20 years that we were, practically 20 years that we were over there, the Russians have lost more killed in two weeks than we did in 20 years in two different wars on, on two different theaters. Those kids aren't coming home. And the ones that are going to come home and survive this are coming home and they're going to tell their families in private, we didn't have any money, we didn't have any uh, food, we didn't have any ammunition, we didn't have any fuel, we were just sent out there to get killed. That, the days of the KGB being able to control that information are over. I'm not saying he can't attempt it, I'm not, and I'm not saying 
he can't make a big dent in it, but no, it's over. It's over. Um, many Russians support him because they buy what he's telling them. And many Russians support him uh, tacitly because they're afraid of him. But the thing I notice about Putin is, and the reason I don't think he's going to be around a lot longer, is because while all the Russians, to some degree, are afraid of Putin, very few of them seem to be genuinely terrified of Putin. Stalin, I'm not talking about even the people now, because the people of Russia essentially have nothing to do with the politics of Russia. But Stalin was surrounded by people who were ideologically committed to the same thing he was, and they were terrified of him because Stalin wouldn't just demote you or give you house arrest or humiliate you on TV. He would have you shot, and he'd have your wife shot, and have your kids shot, and have your parents shot, and have your cousins shot, and he'd have your friends shot, and he'd have their friends' wives shot. He would have everybody killed. That's terror. And Putin doesn't have that. He can't do that anymore no matter how much he thinks he can. And he's threatened to do it. He said, we're going to clean up the country. We're going to, put all the, we're going to get rid of all the scum. We're going to cleanse Russia of all the traitors. That sounds exactly like Stalin. But, but, the difference is that when Trotsky and the Red Army and later the Cheka and all the rest of them, when they were dealing with an uprising and there were and there were common people standing in front of the trucks or in front of the trains, Trotsky ran them over, and guys came out of those things and gunned them down. They're not gunning down Russian citizens. As a matter of fact, they're not, I understand the qualifications here, but they're not gunning down Ukrainians either. I've seen many, I'm not saying they're not killing civilians, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is I have seen, it's getting, it's getting rarer now. But in the early days, the first week of this invasion, you would get groups of Ukrainians just standing in front of a tank or in front of a truck, and the truck stops. And that's when I realized it's a different world now because the only way that that invasion is going to work is if the truck doesn't stop. The only way they're going to succeed is if that truck runs those people over. That means that the people who don't get run over are terrified. They're going to get killed now if they do it. And, and, and so you can't be kind of brutal. You can't even be 90% brutal. Marusha says he's jailed 100,000 people. I have no doubt about it. And I'm worried about those people. I'm not saying that those people are in great hardship. I'm not saying they're not in great danger either. What I'm saying is, is that the ambient level of terror that allowed Stalin to do what Stalin did doesn't exist and hasn't existed in Russia for not just since the Soviet Union, but it hasn't existed for probably 60 years. One of the things I like best about the Cold War was an episode I did where I talked about how, how Russian humor changed from Stalin to Khrushchev to Brezhnev, and that it was always dark and it was always cynical, but the jokes that they told were jokes about things that were progressively less terrifying. I'll give it to you one last time, and then I'm going home, just so you can see my point. Here's a joke they told about Stalin. It's an international uh, uh, Communist Party Congress, and, um, and Stalin is in the middle of the speech. There's hundreds of people in, in, in the room, and, uh, and in the middle of Stalin's speech, somebody sneezes. 
And Stalin immediately stops and, he's, and he looks out into the crowd and he says, who sneezed, comrades? Who just sneezed? Everybody's terrified, nobody says a word. Everybody knows what happens to people who stand up. Stalin says, nobody can answer? All right, first row of people in the, in the room, stand up. The guards, kill them all. Machine gun them all, shoot them in the back of the head. Now, who's gonna tell me who sneezed? Now people even more terrified. Second row, get up. Every one of them shot. I keep doing this all day, says Stalin. Who sneezed? And then finally, in the far back, this, this trembling hand comes up and says, it was me, comrade Stalin. I'm the one who sneezed. And Stalin says, Gesundheit. And then he goes on with his speech. Khrushchev, joke, is Khrushchev goes to visit um, a pig farm. Another example of the, of the superiority of the Soviet system over the decadent capitalists of the West. So Khrushchev is out there in this kind of pasture and he's surrounded by these enormous, huge, fat, healthy pigs. Big, enormous pigs. So they take a picture and they're gonna put it in Pravda to show just how well these collective farms are working. But when they get to set the type for Pravda, they realize they've got a problem. And the problem is, how do we caption this photo? Do we want to say, Comrade Khrushchev among the pigs? That could get us killed. Uh, uh, Khrushchev visits the pigs? Would, would he take that to mean that we mean the collective farmers? How do we deal with this? They struggle with it, struggle with it, struggle with it. And then the next day, the photo appears in Pravda. And there's a picture of, of Khrushchev with the pigs. And below that, it says, Comrade Khrushchev, second from left. Uh, and then the story of uh, Brezhnev is uh, that, um, uh, which one of these? Brezhnev comes to uh, the Politburo one morning and uh, and he's not wearing his medals. He just loved medals. He would just give himself medals all the time. He comes in one morning, he's not wearing his medals. And one of the guys in the Politburo says, Comrade Brezhnev, what happened? Why are you not wearing his me your medals? Brezhnev looks down, he goes, oh, oh my God, I left him on my pajamas. Uh, and then here's a, go here's a joke about Gorbachev. They get progressively less terrifying. This Reagan told us when he loved this joke. So uh, in Moscow, in the end of the Soviet Union, not many people have cars. Even in downtown Moscow, there's very little road traffic. So it's nothing but limousines with high-level state officials. And everybody's speeding, and there's all kinds of accidents getting worse and worse and worse. So finally, the Communist Party issues a directive that says to the police force, anybody you see speeding, no matter who, no matter what, Write him a ticket because this is just getting out of hand. You've got our authority to do this. Okay, so uh, Gorbachev is late for work. He's got to get to the Kremlin. He's way behind schedule. He's laid out of his dacha. He says, look, we know that they're arresting or giving writing tickets for people going too fast, but I'm in a real hurry, so you get in the back seat and I'll drive. Okay, that way if we get pulled over, you know, we'll, we'll just be able to get out of it. So that's what happens. So the, the chauffeur gets in the back. Gorbachev gets in the front, starts hauling ass through through Moscow to get to the Kremlin. These two uh, uh, Russian motorcycle cops see this black car go speeding by. One of them peels off after it, goes rolling after it, disappears around the corner. Some time goes by. The, the 
the cop comes back, and the, the other cop who hadn't left said, so did you write him a ticket? He said, no, I didn't write him a ticket. Why? He said, well, the guy was too important. And, and the other cop says, doesn't matter how important he is. We're told to write a ticket for everybody. How important could this guy be? Who was he? And, and the first cop says, I don't know who it was, but Gorbachev was, was his chauffeur. Uh, so there you go. That's what you get. You get this lessening of tension. Anyway, I'm done. I'm done, done, da -da done, 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 done for the night. And I'm going home, kids. Uh, so uh, that'll do it uh, for this fabulous Friday night edition of the Stratosphere Lounge made possible by the members of BillWhittle.com, those fine, fine people that keep on that light and that light and the electricity to that camera right there. All that happens because of our members and um, we're grateful to you on a daily basis sometimes on an hourly basis and occasionally on a minute by minute basis and i'm not joking about that either uh thanks uh very much uh, for joining us as always i'm gonna post this baby right now up to yankee tango and then i'm going home and i'm working on some more of this uh, animation because i believe this is the language of the future i think this is the language that you have to use in order to reach people and I'm betting a farm on that. It's not a big farm, but it's on the table. And we'll see you next time right here on the Stratosphere Lounge.